Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaro Thomas. And I am the mistress of the middle, Manila Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and the mistress in the middle, Manila Chan. Excellent. More confident today. I like it. Because okay, before, it was to... like mistress in the middle. Well, I had to middle. think of something. Yeah. God, I had to think of something on the spot. I was like, wait a minute. Chan is so short. I got to give myself a little more. Yeah. Something. A little, little more something. A little more oomph to get it kind of up and running. You didn't warn me about that. Well, it's, yeah, it's always better when people just kind of come in and be like, oh my God, I need to, I'm expected of something. Hey, a tagline. Um, yeah, a tagline, something to that effect. But, you know, everybody has their own thing, right? Everybody comes up with it. It's like they're, granted, it's a talk show, right? So everybody right. can be original over the course of the show. But the beginning kind of gives people this, okay, what am I getting into with this particular person and everything else? Then? And so it's mistress in the middle. It's like the mistress being a power well, play, per se. Then. Well, because you know what? Most people don't want to admit how middle they are. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I want to bring that back because mm-hmm. I feel like most people really are there. Yeah. And I don't like this binary, oh, I'm very super left. I'm very progressive. Right. Or then you have, you know, friends like, God bless him, Ed Martin. Yeah. You know, very conservative, super pro-Trump. But, like, most people are not that. Yes. It's kind of an issue thing. Depends on yeah, like, what's going on and everything I mean, else. It's like this image. Yeah. And and somehow middle is unsexy. I yeah. I mean, it's extremes. Let me see. Middle is unsexy. Maybe. It depends on what it is, I guess. I mean, like, I don't necessarily think extremes are sexy. I mean... No, Put it this way. I, 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 I tell you this. Like I was telling my mom this the other day. Um, we were talking about like complicated personalities. And how with complicated personalities, I would say complicated personalities are sexy personalities. Now she would be like, why do you think that? I said, because it's as you're piecing through, like if you're looking at television shows, if you're looking at movies, oftentimes it's something about the person that's a quirk that doesn't quite work right in the way that they operate in the world. And because of that, it, it creates opportunities in one case, advantages in one case difficulties in other cases. We watch those people. Those people are interesting to us. If those people didn't have whatever that person... On TV. On TV. If we didn't... Because we could see a 360 around them in a way that we can't necessarily see in person. But we watch. If it wasn't for that quirk... Think of House. Think of House. House is a great example. House is a completely screwed up personality of a person. That's an interesting character. It has all sorts of issues associated with it. You would hate him to be a friend of his or even close to him. By the same token, very interesting to watch. And his benefits from the standpoint of the way he thinks. I mean, honestly, even me. Like, in under normal circumstances, my quirks aren't stuff that people hit on a daily basis. It's usually these kind of... Um, like innocuous things. Usually, until you get to stuff of um, impeding decision space, I am pathological on this notion of independence. Pathological. So much so that I have a tendency to pry into people to make sure that they are explicitly want exactly what they're saying they want it because oftentimes I disbelieve what they're saying. Hey, Jamar, I'm, I'm going to use a more modern example. Uh-huh. House is so, so 90s. House is old, right. 90s, It's the first thing that came to mind. Early 2000s. Yeah. I'm going to go with Beth Dutton from Yellowstone. 
I have no idea who that is. Hey, you gotta watch. I mean, I didn't think I was gonna like <laughs> I have no it. idea who that is. I did not think I was gonna like Yellowstone. Kevin Costner stars and all these other people. This, Wait, it's a movie? No, it's it's a series. Okay. And I just binged on it because I really did not think I would like something based in Montana. Yeah. Of all, you know, like, I was, I, I went through everything that Netflix offers. Uh-huh. So then people are like, you should watch Yellowstone. Everyone's watching Yellowstone. Yellowstone, buffaloes, and, and cows. Come on, I'm a city girl, and I gave it a chance. And wow, what a complicated character! Yes, Beth Dutton. Yeah, she's fire. And you can, I could see how you hate her. Yeah, but you gotta respect her. True Detective is another one. That one I've never seen. So uh, my ex was into this one where the lead character in the first season, she was like, he's like you, he's like you. The guy is very bright, very cerebral. He tends to, I guess you could say, slide off emotions in the sense of this kind of intellectual thing and tends to be very abrupt in the way that he talks about and goes into the stuff in this kind of pursuit of intellectual it's way. It's called lead detective. No, it's called true detective. Oh, true detective. Yeah, I think it was an HBO thing. Oh. I mean, there's a few of those like that you could point out, but oftentimes you find a character that is just complicated. And it's like, yeah, man, he would be horrible to deal with in a personal setting. Right. By the same token, for a particular task or for something where you need to get done, that's your guy. He's interesting, like the dramas and whatnot. Yellowstone is chock full of complicated characters. I'm going to have to check that out. Yellowstone. And people that you, like, if you want some dirty deeds done, (laughs) there there are characters on there. (laughs) Dirty deeds to be handled, you got characters there. Those those are your people. Just watch Yellowstone. Yellowstone, okay, fair enough. I was, yeah, I was blown away that I, that, that the show was as good as it was. Yeah. And that I liked it. Vanderpump Rules. I could. I loved that. Do you know I binge watch? It, that was a guilty pleasure of mine. I was sitting in the house watching it. Vanderpump. And my Ooh. wife was like, dude, what are you doing? What oh, are you doing? Did I force you to watch it? No. Oh, I, I was, forced my husband to watch 90 Day Fiance. No, no. That I was, was sitting. I was. Um, it was one of those random days where I'm sitting there. There's a television on and it's on. Okay. And there, it's drama. And it's drama in a way where you're it's like. You're not intellectually engaged in it. It's right, just right. kind of like... Same thing with 90 Day Fiance. Because yeah. I think I spent, you know, with the, the almost a decade that I was with RT America and mm-hmm. constantly researching and watching, you know, serious things and, and reading yeah. books and, you know, oh, Noam Chomsky and history. And, yeah. and then my yes. brain was like, yeah, done. <laughs> and especially when COVID hit. Yeah. Right? My oh, you needed like, an escape. There's yeah. only so much research someone can do before your brain just melts. Mm-hmm. And I was turned on to 90 Day Fiance and I was like, all right, let's 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 see. It's it's an international show at and least. You know, they you. go to other countries and stuff. So, all right. And yeah, you kind of let your brain drift off. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. Went through it all all the million seasons and offshoots of it. And uh-huh. yeah, it was, it was a COVID guilty pleasure. But you know what? Like you said, you don't have to think. You don't have to think. You're just sitting there. And I realized I went through maybe two or three episodes. And then I realized I was buying seasons. And I, my, and she was like, I what is going on? What is wrong with you? I was like, I it is buy. so I'm good. I'm too frugal. <sighs> yeah. Well, buy. See, no. If it ain't part of my streaming package, I ain't buying it. It, it, it caught me, man. 
<laughs> Caught me. Let's do this. Let's go to the headlines. In the news, in the news, the Biden administration announced on Monday that they will no longer enforce a mask mandate on public transportation. This announcement comes after a federal judge in Florida ruled that a 14-month mandate was unlawful. As a result of this ruling, the directive overturned the government's attempt to curb COVID-19 pandemic that has caused the death of over 1 million Americans. I see Manila applauding here. I, you know what? I know a lot of the listeners and, and my Previous viewers at RT America are joining me in applauding. A lot of people are. Because you know what? If the mask truly worked the way they sold it to us, that it did, mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have a million deaths on our hands. And that or number. Or it'll be three million or that, four million. That number is also, I mean, there's a lot of stuff obfuscating the, the true numbers because the CDC has walked back the children's death numbers, yeah. the elderly death numbers, the, the you know, Working age adults numbers, they walk back so many quietly. Yeah. And there there's just so much contradictory information when it comes to COVID and the way they pitch the vaccines. And I'm not anti-vaccine. If you want vaccines, good on you. If yeah. you want to get needles stuck in your arm and I mean, I hope it's not heroin, but <laughs> if if that's your thing, that's on you. If you'd like it, go get it. But the way I'm talking about the way they sold it to us yeah. was improper, incorrect. And I, I agree with the judge that the CDC has far overstepped their boundaries of what they're not a lawmaking body. Yeah. They're there to offer guidance. And we have treated the CDC as the separate arm of Congress and the executive branch. Like that, that's no, not, that's I mean, not that's a choice are. by the administration. That's like, is the Biden administration going to allow Abbott to bust people up here to D.C.? Or is he going to allow Abbott to basically go with the governor and make these agreements? I mean, if the federal government allows it, yeah. If the federal well, government doesn't. come and go. Or they, I mean, we have tour buses come in here. Yeah, they but we don't have go. immigrants being bussed from. We don't know who are on those tour buses. That is tomorrow. true, we but don't we know. don't typically have governors putting that, immigrants on the bus. And usually a governor to is not footing the bill. Exactly. That and not just that. True. Usually the governor, um, by law, is not making foreign policy agreements with other... But that part is weird. Yes. All that, of that is weird. All of that is weird. I don't weird. think the busing thing, I kind of think, I find it... Who else has bused to... Who, what other governor has bused to D.C. like that? Well, he's setting new precedent. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if there's... <laughs> I don't know if there are laws broken there. I, I do believe there are there are federal laws that, that a state uh, executive such as Abbott... Yeah, can't ...cannot be, yeah. go across country yeah. borders. It's foreign policy at that, that point. That is foreign policy yeah, it's foreign at that policy. Point. But, um, we can get into a fight over the COVID stuff, but let me finish yes, your lunch. but busing people state to state, eh, yeah. <laughs> it's a gray yeah. area. Middle gray area. Somebody's not sounding like a independent. Uh, it's a gray this, area. This doesn't sound like a sexy independent uh. or unsexy independent. I don't know. <laughs> There's a bit of sexiness that's coming out here. Um, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk has come up with a quick way to lop off some costs if he prevails in a bid to acquire Twitter ceasing to pay the company's board members who have tried to block the takeover, allegedly to the detriment of the shareholders they supposedly represent. Musk, whose fortune is estimated at nearly $270 billion by Forbes, vowed on Monday to fire Twitter's director or at least cut their compensation if and when his $43 billion takeover goes through. I saw that. I saw that. Look, I got to be honest. I'm okay with them taking Twitter. I, me too. I'm okay with it. And it's not that I think... Oh, this is the savior of free speech. I don't think that in the least. Like I told you before, if we are dependent upon billionaires to save free speech, it right. is already gone. You already lost. You've already lost it. However, in very specific moments, the whole back the night, 
I'll take it. I'll I will take, take it. it. I'm, I'm with it. We agree on that. Yeah, one. we agree on this one. I, I am one of those. I abhor what Twitter did back in that election. And the fact that they had that much power in and of itself with a, let's say, we don't know as a flat fact that they were able to sway the election and holding information and everything else. We do know that in the Hillary Clinton thing, Clinton fully believes it. And we know that Twitter believed it. We know Democrats exactly. believed it. We know all of those people at the very least believed. We don't want to give the opportunity for people to see information that may create a Hillary 2.0. Meaning in their heads, regardless of what's true, in their heads, how do we stop this information from getting out in a way that adversely affects Biden? And that is astonishing. That's, that is correct. And I also, I mean, I personally have a bone to pick now. Yeah. Along with, you know, I'm with George Galloway and a number of other people who have been unfairly targeted with the label yes. Russian state-affiliated media. Despite the fact they no longer exist. Right. Uh, one, personally for me, my employer no longer exists. But two, the premise that... Anybody outside of Manila Chan mm-hmm. put posts on Twitter that is my personal Twitter account that right. I've owned since 2009. Right. And I've literally never been in Twitter jail and never been in any sort of trouble. Yeah. That they would label my account. And what comes with that is there's a seer. I read through every terms of service. I mean, I sat there for hours yeah. scouring everything. Th- what comes with that is suppression of your tweets. Yes. It is a shadow ban. Absolutely. And it's it's an attempt, especially right now, given the political climate because of the war in Ukraine, this is an effort to smear and discredit anybody. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, the funny thing about their terms of service with that particular label is that it specifically states that the BBC and their jur- journalists will not be subject that? to these labels. How weird is that? But everybody else can. Yeah, how weird is that? Press TV labeled. CGTN labeled. Tell if you us work for all every, of them. Any other are, media outlet. Any, anybody that has any affiliation with anybody, any media outlet from any foreign country, you're starting to get slapped with these labels. Whether or not you've ever even... I mean, the last thing before I got that label, I was tweeting about how hilarious Ali Wong's latest Netflix was. That's Russian propaganda. Oh, that is um, Russian propaganda. That's Russian propaganda, Manila. Vladimir Putin <laughs> told me that he loves Ali Wong. And of course, you were forced to tweet it and out immediately. And then he forced me to do it. Forced you to tweet it out. Either lose your job or tweet that out about Ali Wong. Better do boost it. up Ali Wong. Do it. Donald Trump in a series of emails sent through Trump Save America Pack. Trump Save America, I love that. Blasted New York State Attorney General Letitia James for investigation into his company and family practices. James recently held Trump in contempt of court over his refusal to turn over documents in a high-profile tax probe. In international news, on Monday evening, Israeli air defense intercepted a rocket fired from Gaza Strip towards Israel, coming amid days of unrest in Jerusalem, specifically at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, Israel war, Israeli warplanes responded to the alleged rocket fire by launching a series of airstrikes over Gaza Strip, causing several explo- explosions in the process. The second phase of Russia's offensive has started. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his advisors claimed on Monday. The government in Kiev said that there were reports of heavy fighting on Donetsk, Lugansk, and Kharkov fronts, and that Ukrainian troops were holding the line, quote, we can now confirm that Russia troops have begun the battle for Donbass, which we have been preparing for for a long time, unquote, Zelensky said in a video posted on Telegram on Monday evening. Right here. Let's go to this one. China has scheduled six space missions by the end of 2022 to complete the construction of the National Space Station 
Tang Gong, the director of China's manned space engineering office, Hao Chan, said on Sunday. Here's another interesting one. Chinese scientists have reprogrammed human somatic cells back into pluripotent stem cells, an adult version of an early embryonic cell using chemical molecules alone. That makes the pluripotent stem cell important as they possess the capacity to self-renew by dividing. Accordingly, they can give rise to any cell the body needs. The breakthrough chemical cellular reprogramming technique was developed by a group of researchers led by Ding Hongkai from Peking University with the findings published in Nature magazine on April 13th. Oil rose for a fourth straight session on Monday as production disruptions in Libya added to the rally in a market where European and Russian oil was expected due in the Western opposition to Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. And we're pushing against the time, so let's do this. Let's go into Dan history. In 1995, we have 168 die in Oklahoma City bombing. 1995, I'm sorry. In 1987, the first installment of The Simpsons aired. Wow. Wow. First installment of The Simpsons. Wow. Talk about history. In 1971, the Soviet Union launches its world's first manned space station. In 1919, Leslie Irving makes the world's first freefall parachute jump. And in 1775, the American Revolutionary War begins. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Vanilla and Thomas. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to go back to the Soapbox segment. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Manila Chan, and we'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, a course, and you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. There are several things that are taking place on the battlefront, and much of this has been annoying to me, to put it mildly. Um, I've been apoplectic, um, to put it mildly, on this show. And at times, you guys have seen me be pretty belligerent, morbid at other times. And a lot of that has to do with just the gravity of events that are basically taking place. I mean, it is astonishing in the way that the West reports the events that are taking place on the ground in Ukraine. They do so continuously with a hole in the middle of it and rank hypocrisy um, on the other end of it. I mean, for God's sake, I keep making this association with Cuba. I keep asking, is Cuba an independent nation? And back during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis... Wasn't an independent nation then. We've had people come on the show and they would say Ukraine is completely independent. It can do whatever it wants as an independent nation. And I would bring up what about Cuba? Cuba was an independent nation. Does Cuba have the right to get weapons from another independent nation and point those weapons at the United States? And is the United States, should they be okay with that? Should they just stand by and allow those weapons to come online? Since Cuba, as an independent nation, considers the United States a hostile actor in the Soviet Union that was working with Cuba as it was putting those weapons in, also considers the U.S. a hostile actor. Is it okay? Is it right? And I keep pointing this out because I keep making the point that we would not find it acceptable in the least 
not just not finding acceptable, we were willing to end the world over that. And yet, amnesia, the amnesia is astonishing. So now, instead of media basically reporting a contextual series of events that brings you to where we are, you get rank propaganda. They even admit to it. They even admit to it. But they justify it in saying, we're trying to get into Putin's head because, you know, for whatever reason, Putin doesn't believe or Putin doesn't know that they're just rank lying, just rank mendaciousness from the standpoint of mainstream media. It's absurd. It's absurd. Currently, on the ground right now, the battle for Donbass, they basically started. And reports are coming out that on all fronts, apparently, Russia has opened up their campaign. We have Malcolm Nance. Malcolm Nance, MSNBC contributor Nance, has apparently decided that he is no longer going to give horrible foreign policy advice on (laughs) MSNBC and instead is going to be cannon fodder. And so he is going with those other mercenaries um, that are likely going to get paraded about Russian television saying, here are the people that did X or Y, and we're going to put these people in jail. That's assuming for the moment that Nance is really out there fighting. Nance could just be lying and just be holding a random toy gun for all I know. I suspect it's more like that more than anything else. Um, also, we have this other situation where Russia basically gave time for <sighs> Ukrainian troops in Mariupol to surrender. They're entirely surrounded. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They're running out of munitions. And in this very specific case, there's about 1,000, 2,000 left with about 400 mercenaries that are basically left based on Russian numbers. And where Russia said, we're going to give you about a day to surrender. Zelensky says, no, I prefer those people get annihilated. So as Russia is demanding surrender, Zelensky is demanding the annihilation of his military. There is no practical reason for this. It's just whatever you want to call it, telegenically dead Ukrainian military, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, there is no practical, rational reason for this. There's no military reason for this. This is purely a decision by the Kiev government. From the standpoint of media, you would hope, at least from my standpoint, the media would give an honest take on the events that are taking place in this country. And the reason, it's not just self-serving. It's not just, you know, to give a take about this or that because you feel it's not that. There is a philosophical, ethical responsibility of media to ensure that the people in this country is understanding of what is going on in the rest of the world. There is never more um, uh, that, that responsibility. But issues of war. How do you know what's going on if your media is not telling you what is going on? And in a situation where your country is belligerent, is pushing back against another country, and is making these kind of overtures, it behooves media to explain How did this happen? It's not in order to make them come to a particular decision one way or the other. It's more so to give them a contextual understanding where at the very least when they look at the world, it's a little bit of gray and not this nonsense white hat, black hat, where you can just dredge up a huge amount of consent to position it against another country. These are nuclear-powered nations. This is a big deal. Right now, you have reports that U.S. service members are in Ukraine. You have reports that British service members are in Ukraine. Yes, Russia is calling these people mercenaries, but at the end of the day, at which point are these people no longer mercenaries and just people who are ex-military joining up? And whether or not that is taken officially or not, it's almost secondary to the point that is that what you want? Even the missile shipments or the weapon shipments that are going in, now we have reports that Biden is going to have U.S. members train Ukrainians on additional weaponry that they didn't necessarily have access to prior. If I don't need to get across to you that this is dramatically bad, I, I mean, 
look for the moment. What happens if some of those shipments come in and those shipments are basically destroyed? Because again, any shipment that comes in at that point that is going to be used to kill Russians are considered belligerent nations. And all of those shipments are bare game. If any of those people end up getting killed, what does it mean? Especially with those people being NATO nations. The mercenaries, oh, what, 3,000, I believe, give or take. And again, by Russian numbers. Are these people really just, quote unquote, mercenaries? Or are these people there for other reasons? I think this is stuff that we really need to engage in. The Le Figaro, the French journalist, basically said the Americans are in charge of this campaign, talking about on the ground in Ukraine. So he was shocked by the whole thing. Thought he was going to be dealing with this kind of international force, and it wasn't an international force. It was the Americans. You see a belligerent president that is screaming bloody murder, it, even when he's supposed to be talking about inflation, is talking about the issue in Ukraine. They have wrapped themselves into this notion of Ukraine as if it is a vital national resource. And I hate to tell you, it is not. It is not. Not only did Zelensky know behind the scenes they were not going to get added to part of NATO, they just wouldn't say it, which makes it that much more senseless. I've asked this question before. I'll ask this question again. How much is keeping Ukraine in the U.S. orbit worth to you? Just as a typical American going about your day, filing your taxes, playing your Xbox, how much is it worth to you? And the amount of inflation, the amount of oil prices that's going to go up, even from the standpoint of the amount of food costs, the famines that are going to take place, thousands of dollars extra a year just to take even or just to maintain balance. And why? All of this because we weren't happy with Ukraine being closer into the orbit of Russia, in which case we needed to knock over the country. And the event spiraled from there. Manila, there's always a hole in the way that this is talked about, which is aggravating to me. And in, in creating that hole, media basically is creating a, con a context. And that context is to push people's point of view in a particular direction. One that, direction. One, one very specific direction. Not the band. No, not the band. Just one direction. One thought. Just one thought. And to eliminate any point of view that has a contrary thought to that. Even when that contrary point of view is saying, hey, this is actually more complicated than you guys are giving it credit for. Even that's too far. And so now Nance is on the ground in Ukraine getting pats on the back for fighting for what? Democracy of a neo-Nazi regime that has basically been killing ethnic or Russian-speaking Ukrainians for the last eight years? Are these people insane? That, okay, Malcolm Nance yes. is one of those people that you see on TV and you just, ugh, mm -hmm. you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, ah, got to change the channel. He's cringy. He's way cringy. Yeah. His, his advice and stance, he's been anti-Russia. I don't know how far back his national security clearances go. Nobody does. But, I mean, I, I, he apparently has clearances and, and worked in intelligence. But he has hated Russia from the get-go. I don't exactly know his age, but I imagine uh, he's older than me, so he grew up in the Cold War era. Yeah. And, and maybe that was just deeply implanted in his psyche. Mm -hmm. But... I would venture to say that he was he is part of right now the US intelligence apparatus where did you I mean I'm sure you heard right like last week two weeks ago um the DOD openly said we are using quote information warfare right John Kirby said this and that they're deliberately telling the American people untrue things I flipped out that day 
they, they flipped admitted it. out. I flipped out. I, I was in California when I heard this news and I was like, what? 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 It's an astonishing what? article. The article basically says we have been lying for months. We have been lying for months. But they say and this is on purpose. They say it was on purpose. It's not. They're like, no, no, no. I think some, I'm, perhaps somebody accused them of bad intel or like, oh, you guys are stupid. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, no. We did this on purpose. Like, no, no. We're deliberately telling America false information. Yeah. And they're like, but but wait, listen to us first. Here's why. Yeah. And their reason of why is that they say this is to mind F mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. By the way, even, I don't know if that's true, though. Even if oh, that's so stupid. Like to mess with Vladimir Putin's mind, you're going to disseminate fake news in the U.S. mainstream media. Why would Putin believe? Meaning, why would he care that we're lying to the population? Meaning, does he not know? Like, Putin is clearly aware of what's taking place on the ground militarily. That's what he cares about. Or he like doesn't what's care. What's happening with his own people. Exactly. He does not like, care. Does he care what Americans no. think or believe if we like the band One Direction? It's, it's like, or hey, we like- they said they were going to do a chemical weapon strike. Is that, did we, did we, did we say that? Did we say right. that? I don't think no, they're not confused. going to do that. It's right. stupid. It's so stupid. I don't stupid. think he is the person that's confused. I think what, what is happening with the, the U.S. intelligence apparatus is that this is a, a cover-up mm-hmm. for bad intel that they received uh, a la Afghanistan. Oh, see, I'm more cynical than you. I think they did this on purpose. I think this is normal. I think this information warfare stuff is no, no, normal as normal could be. I think that's part of it. I mean, that the CIA has been doing yeah. um, misleading information for ages. But the thing is, the thing is, Jamal, is is the CIA, their job was to to disseminate this bad intel or psyops yeah. overseas. Yeah. Overseas. I feel like the CIA has brought that that ideology to Back our home. own shores domestically. And now it is being being used here by the entire the whole of the intelligence apparatus. Yeah. FBI, CIA, everybody's got their little departments. Okay, you go over there. We we cover it here in the US. But a part of it was also because this administration had such bad intelligence on the ground. When you look at Afghanistan, that was his first big blunder, yeah. right? Like the, the the withdrawal was the big blunder that they, how did you not see you get this that coming? Wrong. Yeah. How do you get something like that wrong? I called it out on, on my show on In Question for mm-hmm. probably two weeks prior. Our good friend, Mike Maloof, mm-hmm. he, you know, has eyes and ears on the ground and he kind of read the, the tea leaves and was like, oh, I... I give this six days. He called six days. It was literally probably like six hours. Oh, right. <laughs> like it just happened. And, and, and right, this, I, I think part of it was to cover up the bad intel. Yeah. And secondly, it is the PSYOP yeah. to manipulate the American people, mm-hmm. to gin up support for this bogus war. Yeah. Not to mention cover Biden in this case. It's, I mean, the war that Chris Coons wants anyway. You, yes, yes. Because Chris Coons has been calling for American troops to basically be put on the ground. And, you know, from the standpoint of Biden, he, um, well, for one, Obama passed the Ministry of, well, I used to call it the Ministry of Truth, but I in the National Defense Authorization Act, where he basically allows propaganda on the home soil. So there's that, even though I think they were doing it before. Oh, sure. Um, of course. On top of that, even if the administration wanted to do it, even if they wanted to do it, the media is still carrying it. The meaning, the media's job is separate from that of the administration itself. So even if the administration said, hey, we are going to flagrantly and completely lie to media about everything. If we say, if it's raining outside, we're going to say it's snowing, all that stuff. The media still is 
chosen to carry that. And then not just chosen to carry it and debase themselves, you know, with, oh, we hated doing this. No, they justified it. They're not fact-checking, no. that's for sure. The media, if Biden or Jen Psaki, and in this case, Jen Psaki is telling you that it's raining outside and you look outside and you're a member yeah. of the press and you're like, but I see sun, but Jen says it's raining. So, so I'm just going to go ahead and- Jen says it's raining. Jen says it's raining. That's enough. It must be raining. That's enough. That's it. I mean, it's like, is that your job? Is that your job? And it's like, of course, that's not your job. They, these guys have taken on this idea of war propaganda over Ukraine, for God's sake. It's not even like, you know, we're at war in this case. But maybe we are. At the very least, that's where they're acting. Proxy um, war. Yeah, proxy, to put it mildly. Proxy war. This is, this, this, I mean, is it a proxy if we have troops in Ukraine? No, you use proxies for the proxy. Yeah. For no, the proxy war. I, I get that. I'm saying if we have troops in Ukraine and if America is on the ground, is it really Proxy well, then it point. becomes not a proxy Yes, war. it's something else far more— You're just using a proxy theater yes. at that point. Yes. But right now, it's full-on the U.S. Proxy. is doing a proxy. Yeah. The, the, I believe Vladimir Putin and the Russians have, have a different goal. Yes. I don't know if the American officials actually believe Putin's stated goals or if we're just making up our own here stateside. Because to me, it would appear that we're making up our goals our own beliefs as to what we think Vladimir yes. Putin wants. And he's like, no, these are the things I want. I suspect behind the scenes, they know the truth. Because I mean, so? if you look on the ground, they're doing exactly what he said he was going to do. I think it's just that goes back to the whole, okay, we're just going to lie to the public. I, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I suspect behind the scenes, if they don't, oh man, they are far worse than I think. Than I right, thought they exactly. were. Right, exactly. I think there is some, I think they are worse. Yeah. And I think there are some, they genuinely think that's not what Vladimir Putin wants. What, why would he not want Ukraine in NATO? It's like they, yeah. they don't, it's like they're hitting a wall of understanding. Yeah. They just don't understand that why that is a red line. Despite the fact, oh no, they know that's a red line. They but, know that's a red line. No, I think they, they, they they know, but they I don't think they took it seriously because we wouldn't have gotten to this point if they took it seriously because Vladimir Putin had been harping on that for the last three or four years. Are you sure? <sighs> Are you sure? I Maybe think, I'm more cynical than you on this. I think not only did they know this was a red line, they didn't care. I think they're they dumb, but I think, it they're, was, I think they're genuinely dumb. I thought, <laughs> I think they used Ukraine as cannon fodder. I think they didn't care anything about Ukraine and they looked at this as a way of basically yeah, skinning the Russians' knee in the same way they did in Afghanistan. That's the way I look at it. I mean, I, I because otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Why would you know this is real? I mean, these guys basically said they wouldn't expand NATO an inch, going all the way back like 40, 50 years ago. Why say that? Well, not that long ago. Okay, well, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Okay, well, but go 35. Why, 30 years, okay, 35. Why say it if you don't know, if you don't think that's a red line? That's the catch. Meaning, they had to know it's it. Different I, administration. It is a different administration, but and I think a it was- a whole different group of people. I think it was a Hobbes choice. I think they thought we can either surround them or get them involved into a conflict that they don't want to be in. Kind of like William Burns. William Burns said the same thing. That was 10 years ago. Basically saying, yeah, means that. <laughs> um, but let's do this. We have a guest. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as I mentioned earlier, the offensive in Donbass is basically open based on accounts from both sides. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said on Tuesday that Moscow was starting a new stage of what it's called the Special Military Operation in Ukraine, which he predicted would be a significant development. Quote, another stage of this operation in eastern Ukraine is beginning, and I'm sure this will be a very important moment of this entire special operation, Lavrov said in an interview with India Today Channel. And you also had Zelensky basically coming out saying something similar that on all fronts, the Russian advance is basically open. I've even been reading in other fronts who people have been either on the ground and been analyzing this and basically made the point of saying the Russian advance has basically been moving pretty steadily. And this is not a situation where it just started today. Keep in mind, we've been telling you for weeks that the majority of this conflict, the major part of this conflict, was taking place in the East weeks ago. And we were telling you that because the main military of Ukraine was in the East and it was being surrounded and encircled and basically being annihilated. In this case, it seems that the main offensive had basically taken place in earnest. And stay tuned. But to have a conversation about it, we're joined with the one and only Elijah Magnier. He's a war correspondent, a journalist, and at this point, a friend of the show. Elijah, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Hello. Thank you very much for having me again. I'm fine. Thank you. No, I appreciate you joining us, especially um, with everything that's going on. You've been a war correspondent. You are invaluable to us in kind of an understanding of what is taking place on the ground and what some of these people are basically thinking. So it seems that the conflict has basically entered, I don't want to say a final stage because I don't necessarily know if it's a final stage, but it definitely feels like a major battle um, that's basically taking place. What do you, what's your take on this, on events that are basically taken so far? Like I said, Lavrov um, and Zelensky are basically saying the exact same thing. There have been other reports of all sorts of bombing and all sorts of um, opening on the front. What are your thoughts? We've seen many essential points in this battle. First of all, um, what we are seeing today is the Russia never declare what are the objectives, apart from the denazification that Ukraine should remain neutral, uh, will not shelter, shelter any uh, NATO forces or will not join a NATO or any other uh, foreign military, will not deploy um, uh, strategic weapons on its soil. Uh, that we have seen. We, we have not heard anything from the Russians saying our military objectives are to liberate this area or to control that area. However, on the movement on the ground, we've seen a phase one that was to put pressure on Ukraine and say, well, you need to sign an agreement so we can end this war and stop this killing. But, but we uh, also clearly see how the Americans had drove the European behind them and forced Ukraine just to receive weapon, fight to the last Ukrainian, refused any negotiation, rejecting every single, after every single meeting, to sign what they have agreed before leaving the room to return the following day and say, we start all over again, giving an indication that the negotiations are not serious because Ukraine was hoping and still hope that the U.S. will continue providing weapons and they agreed, they, they believe what the Americans are telling them that the Russians will be defeated, which is completely nonsense. Because what, uh, when the Russians stopped phase one by coming closer to Kiev 
and convince the government to stop the war, they pull out from uh, the uh, around the capital, and now they're concentrating on uh, the, the area of Donbass on the uh, east side and the south, of course, Mariupol, uh, that is expected to be completely free from the Nazi today or tomorrow at the latest. And uh, the reason why the Russians are doing it is because the international community closed an eye since 2014 about 13 to 14,000 Ukrainian killed by other Ukrainian who are uh, in on the side of the government who was responsible of the killing of the other Ukrainian on the east side that is in the Donbass area, closing an eye what's happening uh, over there. And then Russia said, okay, it's time for me to move in. And I, the Russia gave so many indications. And uh, in the last uh, eight years, by saying this cannot continue, and in the last 30 years, by saying NATO cannot expand, and now as Russia is a superpower, like the United States is saying, I have the right to defend myself and the interest of the Russian speaker, Ukrainian, uh, that are in Ukraine. And it's about time to make sure that Ukraine is not going to be a hostile country and a base of more American nuclear weapons as they are already in all over East, uh, Western, Euro- Eastern European countries who are on the borders of Russia. Elijah, can I jump in there for a second? Uh, at the beginning, you said that Vladimir Putin did not state any clear objectives for uh, his military action there. But I seem to recall that he stated three simple goals and three simple demands for the military action to cease. And some of those goals included, and it was very short, one of those goals was, uh, as he stated, was to denazify the country. Uh, a second portion of that was to basically free the, the East, free the Donbass region, and allow them um, liberation from the Ukraine. And third was obviously to discuss all the NATO stuff, and that leads us to his demands, right? Were those not his his intentions and his goals that he stated publicly? Did we miss something? No, we haven't, actually. And uh, this, these are one of the points that I mentioned in, uh, earlier on. However, I'm talking about the details of the military uh, tactic because we saw troops going toward Kiev from uh, Belarusia and uh, that is not part of the Donbass. So therefore, when the Russian forces landed in Hosnomel and uh, in uh, uh, the area Chernobyl and around Kiev, that was outside the point that mentioned earlier on. However, later on, we've seen the withdrawal of the Russian forces, the relief of the northern front, and concentration more on the eastern side, and indeed, to liberate Donbass from the Nazi uh, battalions, and particularly in Mariupol, and to make sure that Ukrainians uh, who are Russian speaker will no longer be under the bombardment of the other Ukrainian who considered uh, uh, some citizens who should not be there, and they asked them to leave and go to Russia. So I'm talking about this military tactic that has been 
laid in front of us, the movement of the troops. Now we've seen very clearly that it is maybe that the, or the whole side of the Dnipro River from the north to the south that is going to be completely under the uh, Ukrainian separatist control. And because it's, it's good for, the, for an army always to look for a natural obstacle where there is less investment of troops and defensive mechanism when you have a natural defensive mechanism like a, a river. So we've seen now, we are, we are, we are observing more clearly when uh, Mariupol will be uh, free in the next hours. And when we see uh, in the north also toward Kharkiv that there are movement of troop and concentration there. So we've seen the whole area of Donbass that is today is more or less uh, 70 to 75% under the Russian and the separatist control. And therefore, the operation will continue until all this area is free. Elijah, explain something to me. Um, Russia basically demanded, Muripol is surrounded, and it's been surrounded for a few days now. Um, They basically opened up bombardments on the compound after they offered to surrender. And after, I believe they gave like 24 hours for the surrender to take place. I forget the amount of time, so don't quote me on the time frame. But definitely gave a period of time by which the people who were there, the remaining troops, could surrender. Um, It is clear at this point they're out of water food, munitions, et cetera. And this is by their own word, right? They put this up on Facebook and um, The Guardian was publishing um, information in regards to the conditions that they were in. Why is Zelensky deciding or demanding that those troops be annihilated? It seems to serve no military objective at all, that at the point where your military is basically surrounded, it's basically cut off, they're basically out of munitions and anything to sustain themselves. And yet, no surrender in this case. He doesn't allow them to lay down their weapons and come out. What is going on in this? This is really an excellent question. And in my experience, I have never seen a war when there are civilians who are asking to leave. There are military who are completely surrounded where the commander or the commander in chief of the army of the group doesn't say it's better to have a fighter that is alive to fight another war or another battle another time and make a deal, particularly when the Russians are used to allow people to leave and to fight less like we have seen them doing that in Syria. So they offer buses and they offer corridors, humanitarian exit. Now, the point is why Zelensky is insisting you fight until death is because there were many false flags in Ukraine that were all false because there were no proper investigation, no international investigation. Suddenly nobody is talking about the massacre of Bucha that happened uh, on uh, Western uh, social media and newspapers, but not in reality. And when France said, we're going to send a delegation, an investigation team, suddenly is complete silence. We're no longer talking about it. Now, Zelensky also used the word genocide, and the French and the German and other countries said, well, you can't use the term genocide because the genocide, you need a real genocide. You're using terminology that do not correspond to what's happening on the battlefield. So the only conclusion that remains when we've seen clearly videos of how the Ukrainian army sealed civilian 
in the basement with cement to keep them under the basement. And a few of these places were discovered by the Russian army and by the separatists, and they were freed from uh, these uh, cemented shelters. It's because the government in Kiev is really looking for something to call there had been a massacre of civilians in this place, and the Russians are responsible. Come and have a look how the Russian killed the civilian there. So basically, it's a deliberate killing of his own people. This is what the president is doing. And I'm not surprised when a president is asking the Russian to exchange a Ukrainian citizen with other Ukrainian citizens. So it's really very surprising. Elijah, do you find it interesting in the Western media, specifically here in the U.S., that take, for example, COVID, at the early days of COVID, and we saw in China, you know, police were sealing people shut in their homes, you know, using blow torches to close up buildings and people can't get out. People had lack of water and food or what have you. And here in the U.S., people were going wild over those videos that were appearing on TikTok and Instagram. But now, similar actions are being taken in Ukraine. And granted, this is during a a war and a violent time. But there are similar things happening on the ground there. But yet, those videos are getting uh, filtered. You cannot find them on TikTok or Instagram or uh, Twitter because they are automatically, their algorithms are saying that these are are fake news. And to the point that even, we know that Google, you know, does this and and filters out any information that does not cooperate with U.S. uh, State Department narrative. But now even DuckDuckGo, the the browser that people have moved away from because they don't want to be steered when they're seeing the news. DuckDuckGo just came out officially over the weekend citing the same thing, that they will be uh, steering people in the direction of, of uh, tr- they called it trusted news sources. So with that said, w- what about the hypocrisy of the, the U.S. media and their cooperation with big tech? Why are they trying so hard to prevent the American people from seeing the actual atrocities on the ground? Well, we need to recognize that the U.S. propaganda machine is excellent and is doing a very good job in hiding the reality, spreading fake news, and blurring the attention and the vision of the population to deliver a certain narrative and nothing else, to demonize Russia. And Russia has been demonized now. The reason why we see all these videos and the, the reality is even on Twitter or Facebook, is accounts are suspended when you put something that shows what the Ukrainians are doing. It's like when some of the residents in Ukraine, in Mariupol exactly, saying the Ukrainian military are putting mortars directly in my house, in residential buildings, on the, on the, on the roof of uh, uh, a several floor building or in the garden. So we understand uh, clearly that this manipulation is doing an excellent job. They've been trained in many wars, particularly in Syria. They, ha- they know their job. 
They know how to divert the attention of the population. However, we should not underestimate the other side of the population who are really looking for the truth. And they are, it's not easy, it's hard, but there are people searching for the truth and not swallowing anything that the Western media and the mainstream media is giving them. But these are not the majority, unfortunately, and we have to accept the reality that it is not in the advantage of the Western media because they carried a particular campaign in one direction to say, well, we've been lying to you and we've been showing one side of the reality. It's not easy to admit that. And yet they did, strangely enough. Like, how weird is that? I, I, they, um, NBC News came out with an article that basically admitted to lying in mass for the last. It's astonishing that they would admit something like that. They even had Spook Kendallani and the guy who got fired from L.A. Times um, for working with the CIA um, as one of the lead authors on that piece. It, it's, it's astonishing stuff. Um, Elijah, explain something to me. To me and from my standpoint. I'm pretty cynical on the issue of foreign policy. I think these guys look at the world as a global chessboard and the number of lives that are lost matter less than what they're trying to accomplish in a geopolitical sense. And from the standpoint of the issue with NATO and everything else, I look at this and think it is infinitely foreseeable that if NATO expands when everybody knows that this is somewhat of a red line and when these guys get to the border and when they knock over Ukraine, that at a certain point, this encirclement process is not necessarily going to be allowed. I don't believe for a moment that NATO believed that the encirclement was going to be allowed. I believe it was a Hobbes choice that we are going to either Russia allows itself to be encircled or Russia gets involved into a conflict that it didn't necessarily want to get involved to in order to defend its security um, issues, its security concerns. What was the point of this? Do you think I'm being too cynical in my appraisal of that, that basically it was fully understood that one or two things would need to take place? And again, I'm going with um, William Burns on this, where William Burns made the point of saying, look, Russia would have to get into a conflict um, in Ukraine that it doesn't want to do or allow itself to be encircled. And of course, neither one of those are situations that he wants to allow or wants to accede to. What is going on with this? Was this intentional? One like meaning this event in and of itself, in the way that this basically took place, I think this is a culmination of like 30 years of policy. What are your thoughts? I need to say that the U.S. has won its side of the war. And the objective of the U.S. was to drag Russia into a war in Ukraine. And it has managed because it left Russia the possibility, two possibilities, either to go to war to Ukraine now or to go to war to Ukraine later when Ukraine is part of NATO and much stronger than it is today. So the Americans' objective is separate Europe from Russia. And that has been successful. Today, Europe has been separated from Russia against the European advantage, against European benefit, because Europe is partner with Russia. Russia and Europe are partners. And they, the, Russia de, de, deliver gas that Europe needed deliver oil, and deliver all kinds of exchange, $190 billion exchange yearly. And the Americans managed to interrupt that and force Europeans to pay more, um, more expensive, the gas, more ex the, the gas they want to buy from the U.S., much more ex expensive than the one they are buying from Russia. And they have the Americans have interrupted this relationship and turned uh, Europe into a full barricade with with Ukraine with with um, nuclear weapons because they're going to deploy nuclear weapons in Finland when Finland will join 
uh, NATO in the spring, as, Na- as Finland said. So you, they are creating another front on the Baltic. So the U.S. objective is to demonize Russia, and they have succeeded, create a division between Russia and Europe, and they have succeeded, uh, make sure that Russia is the one uh, looking at the aggressor, and they have succeeded, force Russia into a war in Ukraine to the last Ukrainian soldier, and they have succeeded, destroy Ukraine, and with the, everything they are doing is just to send weapons. In, in During the Second World War, they went from 85 billion to 135 billion, the, uh, the American economy. So now the American economy will even be more um, uh, prosperous because of the war in Ukraine and the future war that the Americans are telling Europeans they're going to face with Russia. So at the end of the day, the Americans have reached their objective, which is in the number one was to drag Russia into a war. And Russia had no choice, not because Russians are stupid, on the contrary, but because the Russians had no choice but to start a war today when Ukraine is not that strong, doesn't have nuclear weapons, then starting it in a couple of years when Ukraine is part of NATO, and then NATO will waive the Article 5 as saying we are all at war with Russia. That is a very good point. Yeah. And look, it's dark. Um, and yet, I think it's true. That, that's how foreign policy works. Yeah. And, 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 you know, most people, I don't think, accommodate, like, because it's so dark. Like, when you think about it, it's like, you know, it's these depressing. people aren't real people. Yeah, it's, it's depressing. I, mean, I think that's the way to talk about it. Um, Elijah, thank you, my man. I really appreciate you joining us. Elijah Magnier, war correspondent and journalist, and again, contributor to Fault Lines at this point. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Love it or hate it, I'm the mistress in the middle, Manila Chan. (laughs) That means you're listening to Thomas and Chan. Chan is not growing on you yet. The like after you say it, it's like you know what that does sound a little bit gotta, more natural. I do Manila Chan, but not just Thomas Chan. Chan. Like, okay, so Thomas and Manila Chan. That sounds weirder. But that's that's weird too. Yeah, that sounds weirder. I, personally, Chan is growing on me. Just I feel like it's very short and abrupt. I don't know. We'll th- we'll see. <laughs> I don't I don't want to I don't want to take I don't want to use my my married name. What's your married name? Burke. Thomas and Burke. Ugh. Thomas and Burke. No. It's another short name. It's another short name. Right. Another if, short if we're going to go. So then right, what's we're the gonna, point? If we're going to go with one, might as well go with Right, 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 right. What's the point? I like Chan. I'm Chanahan. Yeah, Chanahan. Really Thomas and Chanahan. Chanahan. It's like, is she related to Shane? Like, right. yes, it's she the is. Asian cousin of Shane. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or Lee. Right. It's like just a radical level of nepotism. Um, in yes, the show on the show. exactly. <laughs> right. Add to all the Stranahan's. Uh, but let's do this. Let's get to the headlines. I want to thank Elijah. Always good conversation. Yeah, that was, gosh, um, it was dark. He's really good, but yeah, it's dark. But I think he has a point. I think he's right. I mean, honestly, that's the way I looked at it. I looked at, foreign, that's the way I look at foreign policy. I look at it as a grand chessboard. 
And this idea of lives, humanity, and everything else, that stuff is secondary to them accomplishing military objectives. I mean, look at Assad. They went in and basically helped foment a coup. Obama dumps in billions of dollars. You have situations where the military backed terrorists are fighting army-backed right, terrorists. Right. I mean, just obscene stuff. 500,000 people get killed. Donald Trump comes out and is like, Obama got 500,000 people killed. Well, did Obama care I mean, that those were wrong. real human beings? Trump ain't wrong. Trump is not wrong. I guess my point is, when you talk to people who are on the ground in Syria, they would say some of those people were doctors, lawyers, etc. Remaining whatever you think Bashar al-Assad is. He didn't kill 500,000 people. And same thing with um, um um, Saddam Hussein, same thing. Right. It's like, yeah, the guy could be a thug, he'd be a butcher, all that stuff. He didn't get a million of his people killed, nor did he get right. 500,000 kids killed. And quality of life for the average Iraqi Drastically back then. different than what it is now. Drastically I, different. Oh, yes. I mean, just the infrastructure was there. Women were going to college. Yeah. They were, I mean, for the most part, life was as as Western yes. as as it could be in way, Iraq. This isn't a rah-rah um, any of these people, it's making the point of saying, look, your war that you basically did to take those people out of office, turn those countries into dumpster fires. Any place the U.S. has a, a big footprint. Yes. Any place we have gone for help. Yes. I call it humanitarian, inter- humanitarian. intervention. Yeah. Any, any kind of. It's amazing how so many people get killed with humanitarian yes, yes. interventions. Any, yeah. any kind of U.S. intervention where there's a big U.S. footprint. We have left that place in shambles. Think of Libya. The first every, black every president place. presiding over um, a situation where they're basically selling slaves in Libya. It's astonishing. And it's like, I remember when Michael Steele was talking about this. And they were on MSNBC. They were chest thumping how great a success Libya was. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But it's U.S. media, right? So in their heads, they were like, yeah, Michael Steele, at the very end of it, I'd never forget it. He says, yeah, maybe you need to see what's going on in Libya recently. Now... I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, my God, Michael Steele is right. Oh, he broke it down to them? He said it as they were going out. Like, so think of it as you're having an argument, you're having an argument. Michael Steele was like, yeah, maybe you haven't seen what Libya looks like recently. And then they go out. truth bomb is like, that's it. Yeah, and that's it. They move on. And it's like, you look it up, and you're like, oh, my God, they're selling slaves in Libya as a result of what Obama and them were doing. And I guess that's kind of my point. So when I look at the world and foreign policy, I think to myself, we didn't care about the kill squads we were backing in South America. We didn't care about the people who were basically dying in those coups and everything else as we dropped humanitarian bombs. And those bombs, you know, because they're humanitarian, dodge really good people and only hit bad people. Like They're super smart they're bombs. They're super smart bombs. Yeah, they just avoid good people. They can do, like, they have bad a morality guys. feature that's, es- that's built into it. Especially when your, your commander-in-chief is the first black man. That's right of first black president in the country, obviously he can only say, shoot, and it only gets the bad guy. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's racist to say otherwise, right? His divine (laughs) intervention. Yes. His blackness makes it just right. Just whatever he does. non-whiteness. I think somebody made a, they was like, a black hand is on the bomb, so it's okay. (laughs) Something like that. But they were were using it. They were saying it in a sarcastic way. Yeah, it was satire. It was totally satire. They were trying to make the point of saying, look, just because there's a black president doesn't necessarily mean that the bombs are somehow better. They're still bombs. And those countries still get ripped to shreds. And I guess that's my point. If I'm looking at Ukraine and I'm comparing Ukraine to the other um, theaters of war and conflict, and I think to myself, do we care about the population on the ground there? No. Did propaganda come into play and just absolve and whitewash all of the crimes that were taking place? Yes. And so looking at Ukraine, it's like, am I going to look at that as being somehow different than the other theaters? No, I'm not. 
no, no. It, it's it's dark, but it is just so happy to be true. Just most people don't tend to function that way on a daily basis. Most people have morality and ethics on varying degrees and several, several like that. They're not necessarily just sociopaths. Um, yeah, I don't believe that's the case in regards to people who are in power. Um, they're looking at the world perched at the edge of the world, and all of those people look like ants. It's an ivory tower. It is. It is. Is an ivory tower now, Jamal? Since I'm new, since this is day two. Oh, you're gonna do the headlines? Well, I was gonna ask. Go is for that it. what happens yeah. every top of the hour? Every top of the hour, we do headlines. We've been running our mouth. That's typically not done. Typically, we go through headlines, but you and I have just been talking, and that's perfectly fine. But if you want to do headlines, go for it. See, I'm, I'm, I don't want to disrupt your normal. Flow. Oh, you are not disrupting people, just like hosts have a typical flow in the way they kind of just organize themselves. They create the relationship to which they have. Well, it's like getting a new roommate. Exactly. Right? You're like. Different than the previous roommate. This is more like, like a work wife thing. It's it's weirder because it's more bizarre. Like under normal circumstances, people don't relate to each other where they're um, talking for three hours intensely about right. news, politics, etc., their life, the works. And very rarely do they do it with 500 people watching them do it. Right. So it's and a little weird. Thousands listening. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. Like it's a it's a intense relationship in that way. But well, we see, just call each other work wives. I, I mean, I've been on air for a very long time. Yeah. So I I forget that the cameras are. Kind of there? Yeah, you get, yeah, you forget that stuff. Yeah. It's background. Yeah, it's background. Right, but we haven't forgotten about you. I swear, <laughs> like, I'm not saying that. But as far as the cameras, like, rotating around you, you just kind of get used to it, and it's just kind of there. Yeah, you just feel it. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out the flow. So typically, at first top of the hour, we do headlines. Headline. Yeah. And usually, it's like within the first two or three minutes, we go into headlines, and then we talk about it after. Oh, my. Oh my. But we've been talking about it in okay. the other way around. Okay. Like, go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll take the headlines today. Go for, or, it. for this hour. Excellent. Tomorrow. All right, let's, let's start with... COVID, the Biden administration announced last night that they will no longer enforce a mask mandate on public transportation. Now, this announcement comes after a federal judge in Florida ruled that the 14-month-old mandate was unlawful. Now, as a result of this ruling, the directive overturned the government's attempt to curb COVID and has caused the deaths, they say, of over a million Americans. Now, I know a lot of you watching and listening are probably with me on this, that you're kind of going to kind of go, really? Is it really a million? Because the CDC did walk back a lot of numbers, especially on the death toll of children. Now, billionaire entrepreneur we know, Elon Musk, has come up with a quick way to lob off some costs if he prevails in his bid to, you know, snap up Twitter. It's ceasing to pay the company's board members who have tried to block the takeover. So allegedly to the detriment of the shareholders that they supposedly represent because they have a fiduciary duty. You know, when when you're on a board, you have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders to do what's in their best interest. So that's what Elon Musk is saying here. Uh, his fortune is estimated at nearly 270 billion bucks. That's according to Forbes. He vowed on Monday to fire Twitter's directors or at least cut off their pay if and when his $43 billion takeover comes to fruition. I mean, he's not wrong in that the board, it's their fiduciary, they're a fiduciary to do what's right for the shareholders. And in this case, he is paying basically uh, above sticker price, let's yes. say, right? Above sticker price. I love this was a maximize profit, I think. Correct. So they owe that to their sh- shareholders and his offer is above sticker. So what's the problem? What's the problem, board? Uh, then Donald Trump 
in a series of emails sent through Trump's Save America PAC, blasted the New York State AG Letitia James for her investigation into his own company and his family's finances. James recently held Trump in contempt of court over his refusal to turn over some documents in, as you guys all know, his high-profile tax probe, the Trump Organization. Now, overseas, uh, Monday evening, Israeli air defenses intercepted a rocket fired from the Gaza Strip towards Israel coming amid days of unrest in Jerusalem, specifically at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli warplanes responded to the alleged rocket fire by launching a series of airstrikes over the Gaza Strip, causing several explosions in the process. Uh, We're awaiting the death toll on that. The second phase of the Russian offensive has started. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his advisors claimed on Monday. The government in Kiev said that there were reports of heavy fighting in Donetsk and Lugansk and Kharkov fronts and that Ukrainian troops were holding the line, they say. Quote, We can now confirm that Russian troops have begun the battle for the Donbass, which they have been preparing for a long time. That's according to Zelensky in a video posted on, where else, Telegram. Actually, it could be a lot of places, not just Telegram, because that dude is making his rounds in the media. So I don't know, it could be on TikTok. It could be on, you know, somebody's cell phone video that he's, you know, passing around. He's been petitioning hard to start the Third World War. He's, he's everywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the White House announced Friday that a delegation, including representatives from the National Security Council, the Department of State Department, rather, the Defense Department, and the United States Agency for International Development, better known as USAID, will soon arrive in the Solomon Islands this week because Washington is looking to prevent the island nation from establishing a security agreement with China. Wait, wait, Solomon wait, Islands. wait. Is the Solomon Islands an independent nation? Do they have... Don't be friends with China. Are they sovereign nation? Don't be friends with China. How are they telling me that Ukraine... Oh, Ukraine is an independent nation. Ukraine can do whatever it wants. Except be friends with Russia. Except be friends with Russia. So in this case, Solomon Island, independent nation, right? Don't be friends with China. Can't be friends with China. So the United States is going to do what? Prevent an independent nation from doing what its own security interests? Are you in... Oh my God. Just the level, the hypocrisy is astonishing. It is naked mendacity. It's just, well, you know, when USAID shows up, you know, NGOs, outside NGOs are going to follow. What am I missing here? And then, you know, you're going to hear names like Soros and other, you know, like Jake Sullivan's going to show up and you're like, why is Jake Sullivan there? But Manila, how do they report this with a straight face? How do they, I mean, I we've had people on here who are pro-NATO. And they said Ukraine is an independent nation. Ukraine can do whatever Ukraine wants. If Ukraine wants to add weapons into it to point it at Russia, Ukraine can do that. They're an independent nation. Solomon Allen says we, it is in our best interest to align with China. And the U.S. says, yeah, no. Like, that's cute, but no. But no. How? How do you do that? How do you justify that? That's all. Is this water, by the way? It is. It's water. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I have my, my flavored water. Oh, I wasn't sure. Oh, thank my you. bad. Yeah. I like to keep bottles closed near electronics. Just in case. Yes. So I'm going to keep this way over there <laughs> because I have a tendency to, you know. No, I understand. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, That's no, just no, no, no. astonishing. Do we, do we keep going or is there a time frame for oh, headlines? Oh, it's up to you. It, you can stop where you want to stop. Um, since we've been talking, if you want, we can stop here. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chance. 
that's just astonishing to me. Like, I mean, look, it's not that I'm shocked back, right? I was going to say, Jamar, you know that the U.S. has been doing this for, for eons, right? I get that. Like telling people who they can talk to you and who they can't. Totally get that. Thousand percent get that. It's just the hypocrisy is happening in real time. Like, in one sense, we are basically saying Russia should not be invading Ukraine. It was done for no reason at all. Simultaneously, we are going to stop the Solomon Islands from doing what they want to do that is in their own security interests. How does that work? And how does a reporter go from one and then immediately go to the other and not just fall apart from the level of cognitive dissonance that's um, built into that particular um, story? That's astonishing stuff. Like, it's like, how are you doing that? And I'll give you another one. Jen Stoltenberg, that's the one who basically at one point said, hey, it was a mistake by offering Ukraine NATO, you know, access. He comes out and basically says that because China doesn't condemn Russia, that they're going to make agreements um, further on in that region of the world. And it's like, so wait, NATO is expanding towards China because they wouldn't condemn Russia. Is that why you're, is that your argument? It's, well, it's like, well, she didn't say no. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's what this is. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm going to go after her more because she didn't tell me no. She didn't tell me no. China's thing was like, like that- look, we are independent actors. That's, of course, that's bogus, right? I mean, they're, they're clearly, they're closely aligned. China's Russia. basically like, look, I'm a strong, independent woman. Yes. I will date who I want. I will see who I want. Yes. When I want. Yes. And spend my money as I want. India said the same thing. India said the same thing. Right. And India, same. And they were like, hey, girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's how, that's really what's happening with India and China, right? And the U.S. is like, but hey, baby. Yeah. Hey, baby, what about me? <laughs> Look at all my guns. Look at my missiles. What's funny, it's, it's as if, you know what it is? Look at these guns. The propaganda, I know, right? Look at these guns. Like, literally, look at these guns. Look at these guns. Really, 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 really? look at these guns. Look at these the guns. The propaganda on the home front, I think that's the reality of it. It's not in order to confuse Putin. Nobody who's outside of this country is confused by what is taking place. All of these world leaders know the history and the context of these events, that stuff is purely for this population because that's the only way you could get away with doing stuff just like that, like the um, Solomon Allen stuff. Right, and this goes hand in hand with the whole NATO thing. Yes, that it does. I was just making fun of, sure. But, I mean, that those are really the things that go on in my head. I have to think of this in, like, human context. Yeah. Right, because otherwise, if you start thinking of them as, like, rational entities, that's not true because it's just not true. Whereas dating is not rational. But it's true. Rational for me. It's not rational. Dating Dating is not rational. rational. People are not rational in relationships. Come on. That's bogus. You don't think dating is rational? Baloney. So so when you find somebody, it is just, what, cosmic? Automatic? It was, okay, my husband and I, Uh totally irrational. Every, everything about it. I mean, I don't want to get into detail. Oh, you mean when you two met and everything else? Everything. The, The whole dating process, the whole, like... Getting married so quickly uh-huh. and and just it completely irrational, right? Because it dating is is irrational, but it is it's it's real because it happens. Uh-huh. Whereas if you think of you want to think of natives, all these highly educated people, they're rational thinkers. They're not. They can't be evil. Surely evil doesn't exist. Except evil doesn't mean it's not unless it. you're Vladimir Putin. Yeah, but evil doesn't mean you're irrational. You, mm-hmm. Meaning yes and no, but I think people. People, I think, tie the idea of NATO being these smart people, educated people, world-traveled people, and, you know, kind of put them on a pedestal like you do your doctor, yeah, right? 
I don't put my doctor on a pedestal. I don't either. Some of the worst human beings I know are a doctors. MDs. Yes. Like yes. awful people. Same awful. Here. Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's a different conversation. I, I don't put them on a pedestal, but I would say that they are rational actors. I mean, it depends on what you mean by rational, though. Most people, when they think of rational, it's less war, less conflict, right. less that's killing. What I mean. it's like, but that is not necessarily rational. That's just rational to you in a sense of how much, what do I want my world to look like? That's and my do value. I want that world? Right. That's, that's your value Those set. are my value systems. Whereas the people in NATO, that is not I theirs. don't think they, they share the same value systems that me, the people in the middle. Of course not. Normal people have. No. So they don't. That, for me, that, that is being rational. You don't want to harm other people. Yeah. You want to feed other people. You want to house other people. Put clothes on their back. Give those kids some shoes. Why? But I don't think NATO behaves that way. Why? Why you should why? you do those things? Why should we? Yeah. Because I think it's in, in the human, in, in the interest of, the, of humankind to... Do those things. To do, keep each other alive and be good to your neighbor. What if you don't care about the interests of humankind? You care more about the interests of you and your own. Then well, what? see, that's MAGA. That's, you're, you're going into MAGA territory. No, no, no. I'm just saying, it's meaning it's not irrational per se. I would agree with you that from a larger global context that it is, if you're trying to propagate the human species and keep the human species in a good condition, agree, thousand percent. I agree with you. Those things are perfect. People should be housed, um, food, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, if you want to have a decent world, well, resources that's what you do are it. limited, right? Let's yes. begin with that. Yes, resources are limited. But, Whether I mean, so the U.S. we obviously have to go elsewhere. I mean, not for oil because we actually have yeah, we have plenty of oil, s tons of oil. Um, but we want to go elsewhere because we want to tap their reserves first and keep ours like in the bank. Yeah, right. Um, but but globally, certain kinds of resources are limited. And they certain resources are limited to certain countries mm -hmm. because things just that's the way the earth evolved yeah, over just, millions just and millions reality, of years. Yeah. Right. It's just like geography. It's just how things shook out. Yeah. Um, so you have these relations, right? Because you you realize um the you, person has something I need, I need something that they have, versus vice versa. Some spots in Africa, some spots in Australia have the stuff we need for lithium-ion batteries, for our mm -hmm. stupid cell phones, our stupid computers, our stupid smart... I mean, we call everything smart, but they're stupid because they're making all of us stupid. But our smart cars and the, these electric cars, we need those lithium yeah. components, right, in, in various countries. So I know the U.S. wants to make friendly with those people. And now at this point, I mean, I don't know what the Solomon Islands provide. I mean, they're... In Oceania, which is, you know, like off, what, like near Papua New Guinea. Um, I don't know what assets they might have, but I'm always suspect when the U.S. is like, you can't be friends with this other, you know, world. Yeah, we're going to jump in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we, there's, there's, a, there's a motive for sure. Yeah, I think the motive is just, we don't like trying to go in there. But I, 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 look, it's a geopolitical contest, right? But because of my value system, I find that irrational that you would not want to make friends with other countries. And maybe I'm kumbaya or whatever, and that's what I want, and that's projection. No, I think our fight is over the notion of rational and irrational. That's all. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, one is a value set. I, I the see other what one you're is, saying. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I, that they're, because my, 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 what I call rational is based on my value system. And what they value is clearly not that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, not, um, not those good things. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We have our guests. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we're going to be back in a minute and we're going to have this conversation on what is taking place in Israel right now. Um, yeah. 
Let's get into that. That's going to be interesting. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And I want to go into our guest. There's a lot that is taking place on the ground in Israel, and our guest is going to give us a heads up on basically an understanding of what is taking place on the ground and how events have spiraled into what they've spiraled into. We have joining us Robert Inkesh. He's a journalist, writer, and political analyst who has lived in and reported from the Occupy Palestinian West Bank. Robert, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I'm in London, so it's uh, about midday here, but thanks for having me on. Oh, I apologize. Um, Good afternoon, I should say. Um, So I'll just read the headline, and we can go into it from there. On Monday evening, Israeli air defenses intercepted a rocket fire from Gaza Strip towards Israel, coming amid days of unrest in Jerusalem, specifically at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli warplanes responded to alleged rocket fire by launching a series of airstrikes over Gaza Strip, causing several explosions in the process. Now, I've been seeing the story bubble up over the past several days. What is going on on the ground? I've seen Hamas basically, apparently Hamas has basically responded um, with rocket fire. And, of course, there were basically attacks over the course of last night. At the very least, that's what I woke up to this morning. What has been taking place over the last several days there? And what has caused this, you could say, escalation? over the last week? Well, really, this has been escalating for, you have to track this back over the past month of Ramadan. Um, You can attribute this uh, as well to the Jewish Passover because that's happening as well. Um, And settler provocations there. Um, Also, you can put this in the context of what's happening with the Israeli government currently as well. So, and as well, Palestinian outrage and sort of hopelessness um, at really the situation having no prospects of any peace talks coming out or anything getting any better for anyone. So, I mean, what's been happening in the past week is that the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, after we saw a string of killings uh, in the West Bank, um, which followed uh, about four attacks that had happened um inside uh, Tel Aviv and uh, Israeli cities um, after a string of killings inside the West Bank, then the attention shifted to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which for Muslims is the third holiest site. Um, There was a demonstration that sort of happened. People protested on Friday after the Fajr prayers in the morning, and some people threw stones at the Israeli guards there. who work on sort of the outside. There is in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in the holy site, you have Jordanian guards on the inside, and then you have the Israeli police on the outside. So the Israeli police ended up entering the holy sites, ultimately injuring 350 people. The Israeli narrative is that they entered purely to quell a riot. 
this is incorrect. They attacked worshippers. They smashed windows of the mosques on the site. They uh, chased people inside of these mosques and fired tear gas, live ammunition, and rubber bullets at them. They injured journalists. They injured uh, women. They injured unarmed children. Uh, this is all on video. It's it's not disputable. Um, and desecrated a holy site. So, of course, this caused a lot of rage. Many threats were made, especially from the armed groups in the Gaza Strip and also from the Janine Brigades, which sort of formed itself last year in the Northern West Bank. So we have this building. And then on Sunday and Monday, we had uh, Monday morning and Sunday morning, we had two more incursions by the Israeli forces, which were not as violent as the one on Friday um, and wasn't met as with as much re resistance inside uh, the compound, uh, where settlers this time as well also went into Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. However, people were injured uh, on Sunday and Monday. Um, and then as well this morning, we also had uh, the same thing happen. So, so far, this has happened four times. Um, and this is, you know, if you're doing this during the holy month of Ramadan, you're going to get people very emotional. Um, this is like, for instance, the Vatican was raided by a foreign armed force during Easter or Christmas. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter if people are throwing stones like they try and blame it all on worshippers inside and anyone but themselves, the Israeli authorities. It's going to inflame tensions. And the reason why this was able to happen in the first place is because Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, has given, this. these are literally his words, a free-for-all to Israeli forces to deal with the Palestinian threats in the wake of a, a string of attacks in Israel. So because he's given Israeli forces basically the ability to do whatever they like, now they feel emboldened to go and do more horrific things against Palestinians. Can we back back up just one second here? Does that mean Naftali Bennett literally, there's nobody in command of these soldiers and that they are literally allowed to act as they see fit? Let, let me uh, actually correct that. I mean, if, it, if I was made to make you think that there's nobody in control of them. Yes, they do have a command structure. They are, you know, under the control of people. But basically, uh, given the situation in front of them, Naftali Bennett has said, that whatever you feel is necessary um, to those in power, whether that be of, let's say, uh, the Israeli military in the West Bank or the Israeli police forces uh, in the streets of Tel Aviv, the Shin Bet, uh, et cetera, et cetera, riot police, whatever it be, whoever is in charge, if they feel it is necessary to deal with a certain situation in said way, they can do it. So it's not a complete free-for-all where everyone can just take a gun and just start shooting at people whenever they like. However, they have the freedom to do whatever they want. And this is as well, now you're giving power to more people. And if you have Israeli forces who, in the midst of this, and with such a ruling having been given, if they are told to go into a holy site and they're given the order that in order to quell this, we need to shoot, you know, to the head, possibly of children. And they feel that they're going to do something, you know, a little bit extra because they're angry. Um, then this could escalate into a full-blown war. I mean, if, they're, if they execute people 
Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is guaranteed war. Uh, I, I don't know how else that would go. So the order is not just so that every soldier can do whatever they want or, or police officer can do whatever they want, uh, but it is more of a free-for-all. Robert, I have so many questions um, based <laughs> on what you've just said. I mean, for one, the Jordanian guards versus Israeli police, Even I, I'm interested on that part. But the, I'm, I, um, remind me for this for a moment. I, I have a memory of this. Al-Aqsa Mosque was the mosque that was at the center of, I think it was like last year, where there was a war between Hamas and Israel where, I mean, rockets were firing. This went on for a period of time. And if I remember correctly, Fatah was basically on the outside of this. I mean, this really did um, create this kind of fight between the two sides in this. Is this, I mean, is this just kind of an extension of what was taking place the first time around? Well, I mean, it, does that make sense or am I remembering this incorrectly? Well, it's a very similar situation. A lot of people are saying it's like deja vu or this is the carbon copy of last year. There are some differences. Um, and, and the comment you made about Fatih, the Fatih party, um, the mainstream Fatih party and its leadership run what's known the, as the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, whereas uh, the Gaza Strip is ran by Hamas. Um, but people who are part of the Fatih movement um, and many people who are lower down in different parts of its leadership um, are very much outraged by the attacks. I mean, pretty much everyone is out outraged by the attacks. But Fatih is a movement uh, being in control and its primary uh, central leadership that's in control of the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is like, uh, if anyone knows what the South Lebanon army is, that's sort of what it operates as now inside the West Bank. There's no prospects of it creating uh, two states. The Israeli government doesn't even consider talking to the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. He's very much useless on the front of making a Palestinian state and going towards nationhood at this moment. He's there for Israeli security coordination in the West Bank, uh, whereas Hamas Hamas is a registered uh, designated terrorist organization in basically every single Western country. The Israelis see it that way. Um, they're the biggest, most popular Palestinian political party. That's not anything to do with anything other than the fact that they are the big Palestinian political party, which is not accepting Israel's occupation and is willing to fight them. Uh, that's the reason they have the popularity and pretty much every other group. Uh, they're all fighting Israel, and that's how they derive uh, all of their uh, authority. Uh, Fatih now, you'll see a lot of young people who support that movement, uh, it being a secular movement. Uh, they now uh, as well have created these sort of uh, not so centralized uh, armed wings, uh, which aren't actually part of the official Fatih party. And they're fighting from the West Bank uh, and also the Gaza Strip. And they're called the Alexa Martyrs Brigades which were disbanded officially many years ago, uh, the official Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades by Yasar Arafat during the Second Intifada. Robert, today, uh, the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan, is going to hold a call with Israel's president, with Isaac Herzog, um, after all of this stuff went down. What is Turkey's role in all of this? Are they going to be playing peacemaker here? Are they going to be roping in, you know, the the tensions uh, to their with their neighbors with Iran, um, and and are they gonna are they gonna put the blame on Hamas and you know not making this an organic movement where you know there were just things that spiraled out of control? Or are they gonna turn this into a greater argument to say, oh these people were this is Hamas and this is their doing and you know are they gonna spiral this? I don't think Turkey has the ability to dictate 
how this is going to be viewed. Israel has gone ahead and has been extremely aggressive in its approach to this. Um, you know, already the open fire policy in the West Bank was uh, altered uh, so that it was easier for Israeli forces to shoot dead Palestinians in December. But the recent orders given by Naftali Bennett has made it even worse. We can see that. We can see the incursions into Al-Aqsa Mosque. I think it would be ridiculously stupid for uh, Erdogan during Ramadan to go out and blame Palestinians. It doesn't matter what group, uh, any Palestinians for what Israel did in Al-Aqsa Mosque, even Saudi Arabia. Um, and there was a complete silence from the United Arab Emirates. Even Saudi Arabia came out and strongly condemned uh, what happened at Al-Aqsa Mosque. And normally Saudi Arabia is not very active on these issues. Um, it's bad optics, especially during Ramadan, to take a bad stance on this issue. Maybe he can try and mediate some way. Um, maybe there is a possibility there. But through the messages that the Israelis try and send indirectly through the Egyptian delegations uh, that go into the Gaza Strip to talk to Hamas, they haven't been able to stop what is currently looking like it will happen. The rocket fire yesterday, it's not, uh, it wasn't actually fired by Hamas, I believe it was by Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement. Um, and all, by the way, in the Gaza Strip, all of the groups are now coordinating in what's called the Joint Room of Armed Resistance Factions. That's what it translates to in English. Um, and this uh, Joint Room have, in my opinion, this is now my opinion, um, fired a single rocket in order to draw in an Israeli response because they wanted to fire uh, an anti-aircraft uh, an an anti uh, missile, uh, a new missile that they'd acquired, um, and to basically show the Israeli warplanes that now if you enter the skies of Gaza, we can shoot at you with a guided mis uh, missile uh, to take down your planes. Um, so it was a calculated escalation in you know the events of what's going on. And I believe the armed groups in Palestine are going to strategically escalate this as they see fit. And if Israel does something extremely violent, then we will see this break it out into war. But first, they will let it build and they will let Israel go for the aggression because Israel has just continues to get more aggressive. But what is their end goal? I mean, and maybe that's the, maybe that's not necessarily the best question, but I just remember the first time around back in El-Aqsa Mosque when all of this was taking place and there ended up being this kind of back and forth between Hamas and Israel. But the people in the region basically, uh, I think, like you say, were backing Hamas in that because of the situation to which they're presented with. But I'd never understood what, did, what was the end goal. I mean, say, for example, they got what they wanted. And say, for example, Israel um, responded with warplanes and they were able to shoot the warplanes. Well, if they didn't take the warplane down, then that means that they just got bombed. And if it does indeed, let's say they do take down a warplane, what do they think is going to happen after they take down the warplane? I, I guess I never understand the end game in this process. And oftentimes it just seems like it's this kind of back and forth where one side basically gets large numbers of people killed. I mean, but explain to me, am I missing something in this? Or is it something I'm just not understanding in the way that these guys are going in this kind of escalation and exchange back and forth? Well, I mean, you have to view this in terms of a people who right now they don't have, in my opinion, the Palestinian authority doesn't have any power in the international community. Um, you know, there was during uh, was the so-called peace process um, was the Arab Peace Initiative. And that had some 
sort of legs um, because the Arab countries would be behind it. That's gone now. The Arab regimes are all normalizing. So you have a situation in which the Palestinian people have little to no legitimate representation because they're the president of the Palestinian Authority is unelected. They haven't had elections since 2006. The last elections, uh, legislative elections, Hamas won. But Hamas are not considered as a legitimate peace partner. Now, the Palestinians have gone out and protested nonviolently during 2018. They came out for the Great Return March. That resulted in over 300 Palestinians being massacred by the Israeli forces. 30,000 plus injured by the Israeli forces. No Israelis were injured. Not a single Israeli was seriously injured or hurt uh, or killed during these demonstrations. But the BBC and the international community tried to pre present it as a balanced equation and riots and clashes, which it wasn't. It was ridiculous. So the Palestinians, whatever they do on any other front, they can't gain any ground. In the past, strategically, the reason why the PLO was a thing was because of armed struggle. Um, and in my opinion, that's not disputable. The armed struggle is what brought the Palestinian cause to the entire world. So for the Palestinian groups, looking at the situation now, Gaza is unlivable. They have to try and do something, even if they would like to make the situation better in Gaza, if their holy sites are under attack. People are not going to put up with the horrific conditions in the Gaza Strip if these groups can't even defend the holiest site in their country, the most important site in their country. They have to do something. And if they don't do anything, then these parties won't have any legitimacy. Um, so they're in a position where they have to act, even if they don't want to. I'm not saying that they do or don't. I don't know, you know, the leaderships. No, you defend is forced. Well, I, I've interviewed yeah, many of the them, but I basically. don't know them and what's in their head. Yeah, when your hand is forced, you, I mean, you got to do, you got to do something. Um, you, you know, you know, there's, there's another group that a third party that is often ignored when stuff like this pops off, um, in the occupied West Bank or anywhere across, um, Palestine or or Israel, and that is the the Christians in that community. And because it, it was also Easter and, it, you know, it's this bizarre time where all the stars aligned, literally, and it's this overlap of major, major uh, holidays for three major religions. Uh, there is a small Christian minority there. And over, over the weekend, the Greek Orthodox patriarch rejected Jerusalem's police uh, adventure into, yeah. So, that's kind of a big deal when the Greek Orthodox Church is speaking up about this. Where do, what role do the Christians play in that community? Well, these are Palestinian Christians. Uh, so they suffer the same way the, uh, the Muslims are. I mean, often in the West, the way that we have this conflict presented to us is in religious terms or clash of civilization, these sort of things. Um, and it's just not true. Uh, it, it's nothing to do with religion. This is about land. This is about territory. I mean, we could go really far back into the conflict if we wanted to. But I, I think, you know, in order to save time, we don't have to uh, go back so far and, and look at both sides. But this in terms of uh, Christians and Muslims, uh, th these, you know, these are the same people, um, you know, their neighbors uh, in places like Bethlehem, uh, Elsewhere in the West Bank as well, uh, of course, you've got them scattered around everywhere. The original families in, in Ramallah, uh, they're all Christian families. 
So if you go to Ramallah, there is like uh, these monuments of lions and the original families in Ramallah, which is sort of where the Palestinian Authority is based uh, today. Um, they're Christians. Um, and, you know, Christians are at the center of uh, Palestine and Palestinian history. So, um, yeah, there's no division between Palestinian people. They are united in a struggle there. They forever have been. You know, Christians were expelled from their homelands in 1947 to 1949 uh, during the Nakba. So uh, the Christians, yeah, there, there's no difference really between Muslims and Christians in terms of way, the way they're treated by the Israelis right now and the way that they resist them and struggle as well. I mean, the Palestinians, uh, for instance, Christians, if you take from the Christian community, George Habesh started, uh, you know, was a co-founder of the Arab nationalist movement and later the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was perhaps one of the most well-known Palestinian uh, armed movements. Uh, and, you know, one of the most influential uh, leaders, which uh, was George Hebesh. So, um, yeah, uh, I suppose we could go further if you wanted to. Robert, do you have time to spend another uh, about 10 minutes or so? I have um, a few more questions that I wanted to go into. Absolutely. Okay. So this issue, you made the point of, but you made the point of saying there were Jordanian troops on the ground with Israeli police on the outside. Explain that setup for me. I mean, because if the Jordanian troops were on the ground or in the inside of the mosque themselves, how did the Israeli troops, or were they able to, or I'm sorry, I'm saying this weirdly, how were the Israeli police able to behave that way if the Jordanian troops were on the inside? And for that matter, why was that arrangement set up in that way in the first place? So basically, there's Jordanian custodianship. Uh, so the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan has custodianship over the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound to protect the holy site. Um, oh, and so this means that there's Jordanian guards who are deployed on the inside. But in, when we're talking about Jordanian guards. What, one second. Sorry to cut in. Just so we're clear on this. Is it treated sort of the way embassies are treated in foreign nations where there, it's a, it, that little piece of land is, a, is, is sovereign to the land that it's in? Uh, not exactly. I mean, it's a, it, it's, it's a weird situation. I mean, they have technical custodianship over it. They have guards inside of it, but their guards aren't, you know, armed like, for instance, embassy guards would be if you had a Jordanian embassy, for instance. Oh, okay. um, you know, uh, if you have a Jordanian embassy, those guards will have guns and nobody will enter. And if they enter, then they're going to get shot or, you know, this is a serious crime. But the Jordanians will just sort of say, hey, that's a bad thing, you know. Oh, OK. <laughs> it's like we frowned upon that. We don't like you breaking that. Oh, I see. Like, don't don't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. you shouldn't insult our religion oh, during see, our holiest month. Like, that's okay. not good, guys. Don't shoot our guard, guards in the eye oh, with my gosh. rubber-coated steel bullets. That's sort of what Jordan does. But technically, as an honorary role, because Jordan signed its peace treaty with Israel in 94, uh, you know— they have this sort of role that they play where they say, yeah, we have a custodianship, which means little. Huh. Wow. OK, fair enough. One more question on the. Con oh, please finish. No, no, no. I was just going to add in that those guards. Yeah. Uh, one of them was actually shot and wounded in the eye. I think their eye socket was fractured or broken or something to this effect. Uh, but um, yeah, the, these guards were assaulted, but there's not a huge force of them and they're not like the Israeli riot police and they're not armed. So 
they don't have the ability to stop. We should underscore then that the Jordanian guards are actually unarmed guards also getting attacked by the Israeli forces. You would think create an international. Right. These are, I mean, I'm thinking these are guards like. Like guards, as, guards. Like I painted in the embassy picture. Yeah. Is you would think they're armed guards like an embassy. I didn't realize they were unarmed. Yeah. Basically, it was a custodian or custodial authority on the site. One more thing, the Knesset. Um, there is a large um, Arab contingent within the Israeli parliament. And this was always weird to me because for the most part, oftentimes people didn't want to work with them or the other parties didn't want to work with them. Um, and yet they were there nonetheless. What has been the role of the uh, Arabs in the parliament itself or in the Knesset in relation to the events that are basically taking place on the ground when they're having these kind of conflicts like this? Well, there's sort of a divide between those parties, the Palestinian parties, um, you know, they call them the Arab parties, uh, the Arab joint list. and then. The bloc, which is run, the unified list, uh, the Ram party, ran by Mansour Abbas, which is part of uh, the Israeli governing coalition. Um, Mansour Abbas is actually, you know, the Ram party, which is part of an Islamic movement. It's like technically an Islamist uh, movement. It's very, very, you know, what they call moderate. I don't like that terminology, but they call a moderate movement um, and basically doesn't have much principles, in my opinion. Um, it withdrew and suspended its role with the coalition temporarily. Whereas if you look at the Arab joint list, the joint list are more hardline. Uh, they are, you know, more outspoken about Palestinian rights uh, and strongly condemn these sort of actions. Wait, when- Robert, if they suspended their access when they collapse the government. Well, this is the thing. So already they've lost their majority. Um, the this Israeli uh, coalition government, like it's, it doesn't have a majority anymore. So it, you need to have sixty-one seats out of uh, one hundred and twenty seats in the Knesset um, in order to have your majority. They lost that. So it's now the re- the only reason a vote of no confidence has not been called is because Benjamin Netanyahu, who heads the opposition needs to be able to ensure and find before he does that 61 people in the Knesset to vote in no confidence. So he's in a predicament where unless he can find those votes in uh, to have a vote of no confidence to do it successfully with 61 votes, um, then there's no point in him doing it. Um, so and it would be more uh, it would be better for him if he could find those votes and then uh, have them, you know, come and do a deal with him uh, to form a government with him, um, because I think that would benefit him greatly. Um, and this is also part of what makes the situation right now so dangerous, because uh, you've got the Israeli opposition that want to get into power. So whatever they can do to drop this government, they're going to try and do. So for them, in my opinion, they want an escalation with Gaza, because that might be you know, the final straw that breaks the camel's back destroys this coalition. And by the way, if this coalition goes down in disgrace, these politicians, which have been opposing Benjamin Netanyahu, they're all done. Their political careers are over. In my opinion, it's done for them um, because they already sold out their electorate by coming into this coalition. Their, their, voting, their voters didn't like the fact that they came together with a whole bunch of people from opposing ideologies. 
So all of these people are going to take hits at the polls, and this will be a massive win for Netanyahu. Um, so yeah, that's that situation as it stands. And do you know the update, Robert, on his case and, and his wife? I mean, have, I'm, we know they've been indicted and he was fighting these corruption charges. Where where has that gotten? Well, so far, it, like this is the thing. This case could go for years. Uh, it could go on for years and years. It, it's I, I don't see if he can manage to get himself back into power. I don't see it going anywhere. However, you never know. You know, it has happened in the past. Um, you know, an Israeli president has been sent to prison for rape charges. Uh, there's been corruption charges brought against others who have gone to, to prison. And, you know, so it, it does happen. You know, um, is there is there no law there? Is there no law there that says if you're indicted for XYZ crimes, you cannot run for government? Well, they wanted to actually pass something that, like that in the Knesset. And there was a lot of talk about it happening, but it never ended up going through. So too many because then nobody would be able to run any country. <laughs> <laughs> so are you telling me that Netanyahu could come back to power problem. potentially? But very much so. I I would I thought that this would happen a lot sooner. To be honest, that uh, I went out there and I said it uh, when Naftali Bennett's uh, you know uh, coalition was formed. I thought Netanyahu would be back even sooner. Um, but I was wrong about that. But I think yeah, it's it's very possible that Netanyahu will come back to power. And the more the violence escalates, the better it is for Benjamin Netanyahu because he just sits in the back and he can just criticize everything the government could do. In my opinion, the Israeli military cannot come off as a winner uh, in this conflict. Um, if if they fight Gaza, they won't come off as a winner. They'll kill a lot of innocent civilians. They have absolutely nothing and no options that they have militarily in Gaza uh, unless they're just going to go in there and massacre absolutely everyone. So um, for Netanyahu, this is a, a great thing if this situation escalates. But how does this benefit him? I mean, even if he did take power, well, I'm sorry, I understand how this benefits him, but even if he was able to take over the government, what would he do differently? Like, for example, what is the Bennett government, the Naftali Bennett government done differently than Netanyahu? Or has it been right. a major difference? In terms of Gaza and the Palestinians, there is little difference. Um, in terms of Gaza, the Israeli military has absolutely no plan for Gaza. That's why they can't hit. They say they're hitting militant targets. They're not. They're all underground. They have no idea where most of them are. They kill civilians. And when they want to end the war, what do they do? They go and bomb the middle class areas because they know strategically Hamas, which is the government, is it's, uh, you know, all of its uh, supporters, its, its strongest supporters um, and the backbone of this government is the middle class. When the middle class are angry, and when I say the middle class, they're a lot poorer than the middle class in in a Western country, um, they go. The Israelis bomb these towers, places like Al Wahdi Street and Al Ramal in, in Gaza, and they attack these people to end the war. They have no military strategy, but in military targets, and, and none of these Israeli governments have done anything about it. They just sit, sort of let the Gaza Strip hyper militarize and it just keeps on getting more strong militarily, whilst the situation on the ground gets worse and worse because nothing's able to get better or rebuilt properly. Uh, there. So the people are suffering and more guns come in. It's sort of like Yemen, really. It's, that's the situation. And no government has a solution because none of them will approach Hamas and consider them as any sort of partner because it's this irrational Cold War Henry Kissinger mentality of everyone we don't like is a terrorist and we don't negotiate with terrorists. That's a really good point. Um, wow. Robert, how do you think this turns out? Do you think this escalates to a full-blown war or 
I mean, and even war is weird because war is between two different countries. This is not necessarily two different countries. But nevertheless, do you think this escalates and before it resolves? I, I believe it will do. I don't know how quickly that's going to happen. I mean, it, it could be tonight. Uh, it, you know, it could be tomorrow. It could be in five weeks or a few months. I don't know how quickly it will escalate. Um, it looks like it's on the verge of all blowing up, but that happens quite regularly. So um, I, I think during Ramadan, this is a very dangerous, uh, you know, spot, especially this next week now. Um, and it's very possible this goes to war. What I would say is this time, I think there's a bigger chance of foreign actors getting involved as well from Yemen, Lebanon, um, and perhaps from Syria. Wow. Oh, it, because of when this is taking place. That basically it's so over the pale or beyond the pale that is basically dragging other people involved into the conflict. Yeah. It, well, after the 11-day uh, war in May of last year, um, you know, and even using the word war is a little bit misleading but um, because it doesn't tell the full picture. But um, after that, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, who is the Secretary General of Lebanese Hezbollah, he went out and said in one of his uh, speeches, his public speeches, that he was going to go and get together basically his own coalition in the Middle East that would confront Israel's attacks on Jerusalem. If something like, you know, last year happens, uh, he said, we will be ready to cause a regional war. Um, and so Basically, later on, Ansarullah or the Houthis inside of Yemen signed on to this. Some of the PMU, uh, some of the groups within the Iraqi PMU said, yes, we're going to fight. Groups in Syria also said the same. Uh, so there is now, you know, a regional coalition who are willing and ready. Uh, apparently, this is what we hear, uh, to go and fight with the groups in Gaza, uh, you know, at the same time as them. Uh, against Israel. So if that is to happen, that's true. And Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, was, what he was telling us was correct. Uh, then we could see missiles flying from Yemen and from Lebanon. Certainly been seeing the, the Houthis being a lot more active uh, kinetically against uh, Saudi Arabia. The and, and we know the, the power structure there, just the power imbalance. Yeah. Just mind-blowing. I mean, they've been and, able and the to hit those refineries. Yeah. Israel with against it, the Palestinians. Really just massive power imbalance. Wow, that's amazing. Robert, thank you, my man. I really appreciate this. I mean, great breakdown of the events that are taking place. Robert English, he's a journalist, writer, political analyst who has lived in and reported from the occupied Palestinian West Bank. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Manila Chan. Back in a moment for the last hour. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. Yeah, Manila's been fired over the course of the break. Um, within the last few minutes, you just, you know, it was like you have to leave. 
And of course, I am joking. That is, I guess, morbid humor, considering everything that has been taking place over the last week or so. But let's do this. Let's get into our headlines. She's back. She's just going to the bathroom. But let's get into our headlines. Um, great overview by Robert. That was a really good conversation. The events that have been taking place over the course of the last week or so, and we've been watching them and hasn't weren't able to necessarily really get a good handle over what's take, taking place, especially on the ground. And Robert, um, patient, easy to talk to, and certainly knowledgeable of those events. We definitely got to get him back as events. I guess you can say precipitate. But let's do this. Let's get into the headlines in the news. In COVID news, the Biden administration announced on Monday that it would no longer enforce a mask mandate on public transportation. The announcement comes after a federal judge in Florida ruled that 14-month-old mandate was unlawful. As a result of the ruling, the directive overturned the government's attempt to curb COVID-19 pandemic has caused the death of, of a pandemic that has caused the death of over 1 million Americans. In national news, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk has come up with a quick way to lop off some of the costs if he prevails in a bid to acquire Twitter, ceasing to pay the company's board members who have tried to block the takeover, allegedly to the detriment of shareholders they are supposedly representing. Musk, whose fortune is estimated at near $270 billion by Forbes, an ungodly sum of money for any person to have, vowed on Monday to fire Twitter's board of directors, or at the very least, cut off their compensation if and when his $43 billion takeover goes through. Donald Trump in a series of emails sent through Trump Save America PAC blasted New York State's Attorney General Letitia James for investigation into his company and family finances. James recently held Trump in contempt of court over his refusal to turn over documents in the high-profile tax probe. Hmm. In international news, on Monday evening, Israeli air defenses intercepted a rocket fired from Gaza Strip towards Israel, coming amid days of unrest in Jerusalem, specifically at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israeli warplanes responded to the alleged rocket fire by launching a series of airstrikes over Gaza Strip, causing several explosions in the process. The second phase of the Russian offensive has started. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his advisors claimed on Monday. The government in Kiev said there were reports of heavy fighting on the Donetsk, Lugansk, and Kharkov fronts, and the Ukrainian troops were holding the line. Quote, We can now confirm the Russian troops have begun the battle for Donbass, which they've been preparing for for a long time, unquote, Zelensky said in a videotape posted on Telegram on Monday evening. Look, the West has been looking at this in somewhat of a jaded, weird way. We've made the point that this contest has been taking place in the East for weeks, if not months. In fact, you can make a case to say it started that way with the Ukrainian forces basically being encircled. And this has been taking place for a while. Even Western publications have basically come out and say it, says it at this point. At the point where they were looking at Kiev and you would see Zelensky on the green screen and you would see um, Zelensky talking about the things that are taking place and Western media would say, oh, the Russians are held. The Russians can't take the city. The Russians can't do that. And what did I tell you? The objective wasn't to take cities. The objective was to destroy the military. The only thing he had to do was listen to Putin's speech. Kind of told you what exactly what he, they were trying to accomplish. I guess my point is, now they're looking at it and says, oh, this is just new. This just took place. Hasn't taken place or just taken place. Yes, they may have been repositioning forces in order for, let's say, a final push. But from the standpoint of the conflict that's been taking place in the East, it's been taking place in the East all along. The numbers have just increased. The Western media is only just now getting around to it. 
Let's keep going. The White House announced Friday that a delegation including, quote, representatives from the National Security Council, the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and a United States Agency for International Development, unquote, will arrive in the Solomon Islands this week as Washington looks to prevent the island nation from establishing a security agreement with the People's Republic of China. Okay, that one's weird. That one, I am, that, that story annoys me so much. You have no idea how much that story annoys me. There's something in me that just why explodes. Do you, why do you think the U.S. wants to interfere in the Solomon Islands? What do they have? Solomon Islands? China. That's what no, they no, have. No, no, no. I mean, what, I mean, other than being friends with China, oh, usually the U.S. doesn't get involved or send USAID unless there's something there they want. Do you think they just want... I don't like think, territory influence? I think it's a territorial influence. They don't want China in that region, and they definitely don't want them making agreements with, the, um, let's say, countries in that region. I mean, that, that's why we made, we being the U.S., made the AUKUS pact. Yes, exactly. Which really angered exactly. the Chinese. We're, so we're, we're poking the bear yeah, there, Yeah, we're poking too. the bear. Yeah. Look, I, I strongly suspect that Taiwan is going to end up in a civilization situation as Ukraine. If I'm right... And what's taking place is this kind of splitting apart of the world where the West has decided, all right, this globalism thing, yeah, this isn't working all that well for us. We have Russia and China that is creating these kind of um, deals and agreements. These guys are a focal point of power in this particular region. You have the Belt and Road Initiative that is basically putting all of these countries together under this kind of, you could say, economic plan and deal. They may look at this and say, time for this to change. Well, I mean, the... the the 20th century unipolar world is over. Over. We're that in the 21st done. century. Yes. It's a multipolar world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the U.S. might have been the, the big bad bully on the block in the 20th century, but such is not the case anymore. Yeah, but the problem is you still have those. I tell you this, when I used to play chess, I used to be a monster at that game. I had gotten up to the point from standpoint of blitz where I could nearly digital, at master level. Digital chess or real <laughs> chess? Real tournaments, okay. oh, sitting wow. in tournaments, playing, you know, oh, opposition wow. and everything else. Um, I stopped playing for a very long time, but just because I stopped playing doesn't necessarily mean that I don't still see myself as that monster. And then you sit down at the board and get crushed. You'd be like, oh my God, what just happened? Meaning you still keep the conception of yourself regardless of the other stuff. Meaning the fact that the unipolar world thing is basically falling apart makes us a more dangerous world. Because from the standpoint of the U.S., we're still indispensable. We still should be able to dictate terms, all of that stuff. So when they think back to the Soviet Union, where the U.S. used to negotiate, there was more respect for, let's say, the Soviet Union or those negotiations with China than there ever are now. It seems that at the point where we were this unipolar world, our perspective of it was we won. And from the standpoint of we won, everybody else is lesser and everybody else we get to dictate terms. That's what it comes across as. The problem of this, of course, is, yeah, nobody sees you that way. Meaning the countries that you're engaging, if they don't view you in that way, then they're never going to accept you taking that particular position, which is why China was so belligerent when um, Ned Price was dealing with his um, counterpart. And he was like, look, you don't have the right or the standing to talk to me in these particular way. It's that. And so it's like when you have this kind of weird thing where in your head you're losing either hegemony from the standpoint of militarily or economically as existential, what do you do? Well, when China goes to the Solomon Islands, you look for any opportunity to hit China in the knees. Wait, wait, hey, hey. We don't like you going there. We don't like you going there. Look at what Australia did. Australia flipped out when China said they were going and making an agreement with the Solomon Islands. AUKUS. I mean, I guess my thing That's is... the response. Yeah, the response. This is the U.S. I mean, big brother to Australia. Again, if we go back to rational thinking, mm-hmm. I guess it's I guess the U.S. position, like you said, Jamarl, is 
it's their rationale is that we are the big bully on the block. <coughs> we are, you know, the world's the, a geopolitical chessboard. Right. We are we are the world leader. Yes. Just and still, right? Yes. That's their 20th century mindset, right? But if everybody else, like you said, their rationale is based on 21st century yes. thinking. Yes. And they don't recognize the U.S. as such. Except the vassal states of Europe. Well, there's that. But the, you would think these states or these countries in those regions would be friendlier to the bigger powers in their region. You would think, yeah. That would make the most rational sense. I mean, I think, it, I mean, for example, like, let's take Ukraine, for example. I mean, Ukraine initially, under Yanukovych, was elected by the East and the West. You basically had the Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and you had the Ukrainians, right? Um, that is a country that's a democratically elected government. At the point where you knock that government over and you pretend as if, no, 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 this is the real government, this Russophobic Nazi-powered government. The reality of it is that first iteration on the Yanukovych makes more sense. They're right beside Russia. It's on their border. Right. You so make you, friends with your neighbors. You make friends with your neighbors. That'd it makes like all the sense in the world. More with Mexico. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, so it's like, it's like we are really going this far um, for a country that most people can't even find on a map. And this isn't. And this is not like a normal, natural choice of the country itself. No, the choice of the country was Yanukovych. Everything after that was a coup government that basically kicked in office. So it's like, are you really going this far? For a government that you basically knocked over in the first place in order to keep it in your orbit. That's astonishing. And you think of the level, the famine and everything else that's going to come about as a result of the actions that are basically taking place. I'm sorry, it's appalling. And we're basically putting the world on the brink for what? This geopolitical conquest. It's astonishing when you think of it. That's why it's so, that's why the story is so aggravating to me. Because it's like they're basically arguing, hey, in one sense, Ukraine is an independent state and they can do whatever they want. Solomon Allen's, however, not so much. Can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. I mean, clearly they could, but you shouldn't be able to do it rhetorically. We can go into this after after yes. headlines, but yeah. I've got I've got you know some more examples of this 20th century thinking and and the ravages that it's left behind. Yes. After headlines, this is stuff that started in Asia uh-huh. during the Eisenhower era, and then the Eisenhower doctrine, and then four consecutive U.S. presidents after, yeah. um, and how it's reverberating today, which we'll get into. Yeah. But you I, talking I, about after the Korean War? Uh, after. Okay. During the Vietnam War, at, I mean, from there on, yeah. where uh, in Asia, the U.S. Um, the hypocrisy that mm-hmm. we're seeing right now, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's nothing new. Yeah, same. It's same, same old, same old, basically. Same, same old, same old. Right. Freedom and what, what's the saying? New, new, new boss, same boss, something like that. Um. Oh. What is that, that saying? Something like that, right? Yeah, something like that. Like the new boss is the same as the old boss. But long live the king, or the king is dead. Long live the king. <laughs> I, I have one request. Go for it. Can I do this day in history? Of course you can. Go for it. Or we we go for get it. out of headlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Let me see. Uh, uh, where are we? Oh, okay. So right here. Okay, yeah. Because we only have two more. Yeah, we'll have two more. So let me do the, this one because I'm, okay. I'm I'm sucker for space stuff. Oh, yes. China has scheduled six space missions by the end of 2022 to complete the construction of the National Space Station, Taigang. The director of China's manned space engineering office, Hao Chung, said on Sunday. And one last one. Business oil, I'm sorry, oil prices rose for a fourth straight session on Monday as production disruptions in Libya added to the rally in the market where European and Russian oil was expected due 
to the West's opposition to Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. That's great. More money, more costs. Great. And and this day in history, today is April 19th, this day in history, 1995. 168 people die in the Oklahoma City bombing. By the way, a prime example of what domestic terrorism looks like. And the face of American domestic terrorism is a fair-skinned, or was, I should say, he was a fair-skinned, white, Americana-looking dude. Pretty much. Um, and then shortly after that, you know, we started saying terrorists all look like Middle Osama bin Laden. Yeah, right. right. Actually, no. They look like Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, especially when um, they're born here. So there's that. Uh, 1987, the first installment of The Simpsons aired. 1987! I remember the the rough drawings and so do I. It, and they used to be clips on the Tracy Ullman show. That is really dating. Oh, I forgot about that. That is, I love Tracy Ullman. That is really dating me. Same and here. And that's okay. I I'm remember. Okay with that. I remember but Tracy. That Ullman. is how the Simpsons actually started. They were like little mini cartoons on the Tracy Ullman show. Uh, 1971, the Soviet Union launches the world's first manned space station. Uh, 1971. Uh, 1919, Leslie Irvin makes the world's first freefall parachute jump. Terrifying. Uh, and 1775, we're going way back. The American Revolutionary War began. And I think a lot of people at one point recently were afraid we were going to hit another yeah. American Revolutionary War. Um, so, you know. Stay tuned, right? I mean, we're seeing all sorts of breakdowns, but we'll see. I mean, we, we often have Daniel Lazar on. And Daniel Lazar is one of those people who basically said the Constitution needs to be rewritten, um, saying that it is incapable of dealing with many of the things that we're dealing with and that the breakdowns are... Amendments. Not totally rewritten. Well, he would say rewritten. Really? Yeah. Wow. He Because his... Uh, That's those dry. are your headlines. You guys are listening to the <laughs> fault lines with Thomas and Chan. Now, he would say rewritten because his argument is... Totally just scrap it he's, and He start thinks over? we should have a constitutional convention where people put their amendments up and we make a decision. Because his argument is basically, we are in this kind of weird situation where the overwhelming majority of things that people want, it's impossible to get through Congress. And not just impossible to get. If you think of it, California has what? It's almost like the fifth largest country if it was a country. Yes. And yet, I'm a Californian, yes. Yeah, you would know. That's right. Two senators. Two senators. That's it. So if you think about it, it's like, okay, you have a House of Representatives, kind of like a parliament, and then you get to the Congress or to the Senate, and everything stalls. And you get a very tiny, tiny percentage of the population, like 9%, basically making choices on what takes place for everybody else in the population. Now, you could say, well, look, don't that, you have But the- that's a fight about the Electoral College. Kind of. That's one that of the is, items. That's what it, what it leads to. It leads to uh, dismantling the Electoral College, which once upon a time when I, when I was younger, yeah. I, I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. And, and as I, I grew older and learned a lot more about how elections work and why they work the way they do. Yeah. And, and we see now the drastic, stark contrast between the, the, the border, well, not border, um, the coastal states. Yeah. Like California. Right. Virginia, New York. Yeah. The coastal states are most populated. And because there is generally kind of a, a cons- almost a consensus, I want to say, with how they feel, how they think, but they're also the most populated. Yes, that lends credibility to dismantling of the Electoral College, but, but that doesn't mean the people in the, quote, flyover states in the middle yeah. who tend to vote Republican— 
but their voices don't matter either. I mean, there are lots of reasons why a lot of people don't pick up and leave these flyover states. Right. Right. I mean, whether it's their job or family land or they just want to stay there. Whatever. They just want yeah. to stay there. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be subjected to the coastal, quote, coastal elites. Yeah. And their mentality either. So I I could see a really strong argument as to why the Electoral College should stand. Yeah. And if you dismantle the Constitution, I mean that that is your the basics. That's like that's that's the foundation of your house, right. of your building. I don't think you should dismantle People the build whole damn houses thing. All the time. Oh, look, we argue with him on that ourselves. Because our, our thing is like dismantle it, like really get rid of it. And his thing was like, yeah, you just need to redo it. You need to come up with a system that allows um, some level of parliamentary representation um, where the public's will can basically get enacted. And the way the system is set up now, yes, it doesn't no, allow but it. When you start dismantling and making whole new constitutions, what is the point of a constitution if it can be redone over and over? Look yeah. at Ukraine. Yeah. There was, an, there was a constitution in place. The country, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, the country, people forget the. I am older than the country of Ukraine, okay? I am older than the country of Ukraine. Right. So the Ukraine's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> so Ukraine's actually a, a, a young lady there. But their constitution was in place when the, the country was newly freed of the Soviet Union and got their independence. So it wasn't that old to begin with. So it was based on modern politics, based on modern times, based on modern demands. And, and people would argue that 1991 isn't modern. It is plenty modern in yeah. the way of democracy, yeah. right? So why did Zelensky change it when he came into office in 2019? The, the, their constitution, if it was worth a hoot, if it was worth the, the paper it was written on, yeah. Uh, clearly it wasn't. It didn't mean anything to begin with then if th he was willing to just throw it out. And then in that, that redo, the revisionist constitution that he implemented, you bring into the fold, you literally make the Azov Battalion part of that. Yeah. And you folded them into your military complex. And what good is a, a constitution? That's my point is if it's not something you respect and you build upon, and if you just tear it up and start over like Volodymyr Zelensky did, what is the point? Then, then there's no value in a constitution. Well, Zelensky's objective was, I mean, this was a coup government that basically took over. Well, we know that. I mean, so it's a, it's a little At bit different. At least our I listeners mean, know yeah, that. Yeah, his entire point was, you know, to change it around in a particular way. It wasn't necessarily to care about the population and the way he was doing it. But it was under the, the guidance of the United States. And a lot of NGOs. That's even worse. <laughs> that just means it's not in their interest. I mean, I, I think from my standpoint, look, I, look, I agree with you on some level. I, for me, none of this stuff is constitution, just piece of paper. I mean, the thing that imbues it with power is just that the population, for the most part, agrees and orients around it. If, if in 200 and something years, uh, which is, I guess, how old ours is, does right, it still— 240? 200? 200 and something, yeah. It's like 240. You're the math guy, not me. It's like 240. Let's say 250. Just okay, okay. two and a half. Off. Nice and easy. Um, that's a long time. And is a country and a world, in the way we are now, the modern world, I mean, at the time, they weren't airplanes. They weren't computers. They weren't um, all of these particular devices and everything else that we use and organize our life. In fact, if we talk to people who were back then, it wouldn't even make sense. They wouldn't even get well, the way no, the world is I mean, is they were up. running around with muskets. Exactly. 
So it's like, is there something to be said? Now we've got ghost guns. We I'll print you a gun at my house, right? Like that's we have nuclear weapons. Right. Got people falling through space for God's sake. Um, and so it's like you get in that situation. Okay, well, does it need to be adjusted in order to accommodate the kind of current time frame that we're in? But I get your point, though. Your point is, can it be expanded upon? And that thing to him was always like, dude, but can't you just expand upon it? Do you really need to e- eliminate? Because my fear is that if you eliminate it, you're going to get something far worse. Well, it, let me ask you this. What would you change? If you, if you can get one amendment, you, Jamar Thomas, if you can get one amendment, what would it be? I nuked the Senate. But you, you would make that the Constitution is like you would get rid of the Senate? Yes. Because ultimately, because I think the Senate creates problems. Like if you want to get something accomplished. But the House is fine? House is fine. Because the House is basically a parliament at that point. Like meaning I don't like this idea of a, a House and a Senate. And I, I'm okay with a parliamentary process. And people are like, well, yeah, but doesn't it mean that when a new party gets in, they can eliminate it? Yes, it does mean that. That's called a parliament. That's called a country making a choice in regards to what it wants to do with one administration or the other coming in. And this idea that all of these people, like the majority of the people in the country want Medicare for all, or at the very least, a government health system. It's like 70%. Not going to get it. No. What about um, expansion but, but of Social be- Security? Not but that's get because it. there's a lot of private interest money in there. The lobbyists in there. I mean, get the lobbyists out of here. That is true. I agree yeah, I with mean- you. But I guess my point is, from the standpoint of Congress, the Senate is usually where those things go to die. And at the very <laughs> least, from the standpoint of a House of Representatives, you're still at the very least stuck with a majority gets it. Meaning one allows something to get done. And by the way, this is off the top of my head, right? So this is not necessarily like kind of a practice thought out thing. Um, but let's do this. We have callers. Um, the number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We have Mark from New York. Mark, what's going on, my man? A discussion on the Constitution. Yeah. Add your take. There with me. Well, I, I, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'd, I'd like to say, yeah, good morning. I'd like to say that uh, with regards to the Constitution is a beautiful document, full, loaded with hypocrisy from, <laughs> uh, for actual executors of it. But I find it to be a beautiful document. And I say that from the point of evolution of mankind from aristocracy or uh, to uh, or the rule of the church to attempt to have a civilian uh, governance. Mm-hmm. The problem with the Constitution is not just an operational document. Uh, this is how we execute this. There's a bicameral Congress, and then there's the executive and the judicial. That's a beautiful construct. It's the execution itself. So I don't think it's about tearing it up at all. I think it's about finding ways in which we can deliver better because there are principles in there. <laughs> the freedom of speech, you know, the Second Amendment. Agreed. Oh, wonderful. We have a problem with what has corrupted it. Yes. We are still fleshing it out. And I, and, and you know, even I, I, if I recall correctly, even Ho Chi Minh said how he admired and the Constitution and, and America's uh, form of government, per se. People aren't allowed to participate in and brings it back to the conversation you were having just Moses still related to the Constitution. The big guy on the block, us, this God forsaken place we call America that we want to make so beautiful is the one that's taking people's lunch from every country. It's a bully on the block. You're going to school. You want to be productive and produce the best of your ability. And this guy standing, no, I'm taking your lunch today. That is so immoral. 
No, it is. The Americans understand what the Constitution means to us, but should mean how we should comport ourselves in the world. Agreed. So if we did that in the, without the hypocrisy, the world would be a better place. Thus, we need to understand why people should be allowed to flourish and, and, and why China is flourishing, India is flourishing. They have engineers that are putting in productive efforts to their people. Musk is probably, at the, on the other side, the most productive American capitalist or at least uh, building a business that we see. What has America built lately? What? We service out everything. They're dumbing us down and taking away the ability of Americans to create. And then all we got is military might and guns to run around telling us, we're taking your lunch. This has to stop. I'm all for what Russia's got to do over in Ukraine. I'm sorry. I have to be honest about that. Stop this. This terrorists, these terrorists are doing what they've been doing for too many years. I'm getting too moral about it, but it's real. How do we stop it internally? Our constitution by doing what we need to do for ourselves and for allow people to flourish. This could be a much better way. We can move to the fourth stage, this stage of, of civilization, of humankind, probably stop the global, you know, uh, overheating of the uh, climate and all that, and probably see a better world where people think God will flourish, whatever we wish to, but higher aspiration. But this Constitution is fundamentally a good thing. It's the execution, and there are some things that need to be amended. But our Constitution is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm with you. I think we should, if anything, there, there should be some strengthening of the core tenets of the Constitution, the first, the second. The, and, and, and right, the execution is where the problem lies. And then when you add in you know, the things that are not uh, banned or inclusive in the Constitution, such as there's, there's very limited, there's no language, I don't think, in any amendment or the Bill of Rights. or Yeah, those things might need to have updates to them, um, like getting, uh, yes, getting lobby money out of D.C. Because that is, that is why we are seeing the execution of the Constitution fall by the wayside because it's being influenced by outside money, outside interests that don't necessarily have the greater good in mind. But I, I do think, um, you know, albeit flawed, the forefathers had, the founding fathers had a, a couple of good strong points in there and you should build on them. Yeah. And, you know, it's had to evolve with the times. But to be clear, democracy wasn't one of those main points. Mm, I got to think of the language, but... But I'm well, with, they look at it as a mob. Well, more than I, anything I'm, else. I'm with Mark that we should we should expand and and build on the strength yeah. the strengths of the Constitution um, because we to to many degrees there's so much potential in America. I, I'm with them. I agree that the, that this country has so much potential to do so much good in the world. I mean, instead of 750 billion dollars that we spend on the defense budget. What Excuse me, was, Manila. That's called freedom. Yes, our freedom <laughs> bombs. Um, can you imagine how much good in the world if we took half of, I mean, just a portion of that, $250 billion? Yeah. I mean, you can do good in this country. You wipe out homelessness in, in one fell swoop. You can give health care to everybody in this country. Um, if you wanted to go overseas and spread the goodwill to all mankind. Yeah. $250 billion. I mean, that's just a portion. Now you've still got, you've still got $500 billion. That's half a trillion dollars. $500 billion 
left for the folks at the Pentagon. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think any country spends even that much on military. No, we spend more than the top 10. But that's not in our Constitution. And But that's the thing. It's it's that there. It's not limiting, right? The the Constitution doesn't limit stuff. It, yes, it's it does. not. It's right? laws. It's not exclusion. It, it's not exclusionary. So if specifically it doesn't state you cannot do this, then it means you can do it. And that's why Congress do what they do, because nobody told them they can't do it. Mm, I mean, they're laws. I mean, laws are explicitly things that they explicitly say you can't do this right. or that. Yeah. Laws are explicitly exclusionary. But there are a lack of, there's a, too many laws of some things and then not enough laws of other things. That I agree with you. That and, I totally agree with you. So I, I think that's where Mark is getting at. I, mean, I agree. We have a lot of potential in this country. We could do so much good. And we just don't because we are in the incorporated states of America. We're not, this is America, Inc. I I tend to think that people tend to go in the direction of the incentives, meaning something is going on on the ground. And whatever is going on, it incentivizes people to do X or Y, depending upon cultural value system, the things that they get that are, um, let's say, either accolades or for that matter, some level of profit. And depending on what that is, people go in a direction. Um, it's kind of like software. You build a system out, and based on the system, there are things that you just don't think about that are built into the system that create these kind of weird eddies in the way that people behave and whatnot. Um, I think it's kind of like that. I mean, the rub is there's no way to create a perfect device, right? I mean, there's always going to be a leaky bucket in the way that you build this stuff out. And so, yeah, I, th- I didn't agree with you. Like I said, we used to debate Daniel Lazar on that point about scrapping it. Um, in fact, we should bring him on to have the conversation because he's really good about it. He wrote the book on it, for God's sake. Um, we have Tarif. Tarif from New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? You doing okay? Thank y'all for taking my call. Hey, of course. First, I'd like to say free drawing signs and also, okay, though, they had this journalist, um, Max Brumenthal and other people that was putting out there saying they had the journalist had instigated the, kidnap- the kidnapping of Gazala Lira Lopez. And also now it's instigating the uh, kidnap of um, Patrick Lancaster and also Mark Dogan. Person name is Sarah Aston Cirillo. Basically, uh, this she was basically calling without any evidence uh, Gonzalo Lopez a, um, a a Russian spy. Without no um, evidence, basically he was just criticizing the Ukrainian government. And um, somehow. You got the um, neo-Nazis, the Abzov Battalion, to get involved. Wait, just so we clear, do we know as a flat fact that he's been disappeared? Well, well they have people, they have this, this, this person with the Kraken sign that's on the Internet somewhat kind of giving hints that uh, Gonzalo Lohr, I mean, might be with them. Wait, but who's the Kraken person? I guess what I'm getting at is, what do we know of this as opposed to what do we believe of it? Look, because I, I get it, right? Gonzalo Lira was out. He was supposed to go on Galloway. Then all of a sudden he was disappeared. Gal- um, Lira is the one that's on the ground. We've had him on the show, I believe, once or twice. And he's basically been reporting on the events that have been taking place. Um, he was supposed to go on George Galloway. And apparently he went up. He went missing. Couldn't find him. Nobody knew where he was. And so reports have been coming out basically of people saying, where's Lira? And I think to your point, Tariq, the belief is that he was disappeared, that basically he was captured or, for that matter, look, potentially being tortured. And so captured or killed, we don't know, right? 
Um, that's what I was drilling in, trying to figure out what's what do we know up to this point. Yeah, I'm just going by what the, what I'm seeing from the evidence about what uh, Max Blumenthal was putting out there, that he was creating these threads. And they have this guy, I'm looking for the threat right now, kind of bragging, this Ukrainian militant bragging, you know, about maybe Gonzalo Lira might be with his unit or something like that. This person is um, part of the SBU, Evzov Battalion type of fellow. Um, I'm looking for, man, I misplaced it. But anyway, but Max Blumenthal, if you go to his tweets of the thread dealing with uh, Gonzalo Lira, and um, he basically have the person named Sarah Austin Serrero basically instigated to get Gonzalo Lira kidnapped. You know what I'm saying? It's sad, bro, that human beings would do that, especially other journalists to other journalists. I mean, it's a war zone, Tarif. And people, unfortunately, have been getting disappeared and killed um, in Ukraine for a while now. And yeah, to your point, it is sad. I mean, Gonzo, like I said, we've had him on the show. And he's been reporting on... Oh, we haven't. Oh, I thought we had him on the show. I could have swore we had Gonzo on the show. And I guess we had another gentleman that was on the ground there. But still, either way, it's, it's unfortunate. I'll put it that way. But hopefully, he shows back up. Yeah, surprisingly, the Chilean embassy silent. Yeah. On this particular issue, yeah. Because that's right. He's part Chilean. That's right. Mm. All right, Tarif, thank you, my man. I appreciate the call. We have Jamar from Connecticut. Jamar, what's going on, my man? Hi, Jamar. Hi. Uh, once again, thank you guys for having me on. I wanted to say, uh, based off the conversation about the Constitution, I don't know. I guess I would say I'll be pro for a reconstruction or a redoing of the Constitution because it has been done in other countries. Um, like the most recent one I saw was Cuba under uh, Miguel uh, Diaz, the president there. Um, and they also had the community come out and they all got uh, to decide what they want in the Constitution. They were able to get that passed. So I think if it's like in the structure in that way, which I don't think is ever possible in the United States, but I can see why the Constitution could like be redid or scrapped and remade. I am terrified of Constitution conventions. I'll be honest with you. I don't. I honestly I don't terrified. think. I don't think it'll happen. I don't yeah. Think, I don't, oh, I don't think it. Definitely not in our lifetime. So, so you know, one of the. Hey, thank you, um, Jamar. Appreciate the call. You know, the Republicans for a while, and many of the states have been trying to create a situation where they could basically create or force a constitutional convention by getting X number of states to basically call it. And the thought was they had to get X number of states and they had to have them on a very specific topic in order to create the Constitution and Convention. And then the catch becomes, okay, well, the legalities around that become very, let's say, subjective, which freaks me out, especially in the situation where we're basically setting the structure of our Constitution and everything else. So I, I don't disagree with you on this notion of like redoing the whole thing. I think that's yeah, a like little— that, There's a blank dicey. sheet of paper. Let's yeah. start over. Let's start from scratch. And, <laughs> right. And, let's and start then, from scratch. Yeah. And, who writes it? Who becomes the new founding fathers and mothers? All of us. All of like, us. Like, you want 89-year-old Diane Feinstein to be part of that? The Republican states, apparently, are going to be the ones that are going to have the predominance. That's what people need to realize. Like, when they were trying to get all of these states to create a constitutional convention on a particular issue, like a balanced budget amendment, for example, they were trying to put that stuff into, like, the, the bones of the, of the country. That, right. that stuff is well, dicey. I mean, all of these founding documents of this country, right? I mean, for example, it's states— uh, you cannot be president of the United States unless you're born here and you're 35 years old. I get the minimum age of 35 because 
hot damn, I would be terrified if some 22-year-old TikToker got <laughs> right, voted into, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, good Lord. Um, but but if the country want that 22-year-old, the country can't vote for that 22-year-old? <gasps> no, you need a certain amount of years. What about freedom? What you about need, democracy? You ain't no no freedom at 22. <laughs> get out of here. Um, at 35, okay, I get the bare minimum. I would institute a maximum age. And there, I, yes, it's ageism, but it's ageism the other way too. I mean, yeah, if you're going to have a minimum, yeah. you're going to have a minimum, have a maximum because- I mean, they're saying Diane Feinstein is not mentally well. She's 89 years old. Wow. She is- And you got to ask yourself at what- She has been my senator from California like my whole life. At what point do they think that this person is still working within the context of the current population? Meaning like at what- why do they believe that somebody who's at 90 years old is still has some tether to the population in a way where they're making rules, agreements, that they're even consciously there? Like how, how much of the population is even 90 years old? Yes. Or, or octogenarian, yes. for that matter. Well, that's not even octogenarian. That's no, 80 a, something. I mean, that's a 90. What no, is I'm a 90? Saying, New, I'm saying at the base, oh, right. baseline. Yeah. How many are even octogenarians? How many octogenarians do we have in the U.S.? And how many are mentally acute? Right. At that age. And, and Biden is not that no, far off. No, he is not. The, Biden is not there as it is. Right. And he's in his seven, late 70s. Yeah. But, but still, there, there was a steep decline mm-hmm. that we saw when he, when was the first time he, when he was, time. I put it this way, he, he, he was debating Sarah Palin. Dramatic difference between the current Joe Biden. Yeah. Way and that wasn't that long ago. Well, maybe that was a while ago. No, I, mean, I mean, when, when Biden when was, he I mean, was, Obama in office. When he was VP. Yeah. He was that there. wasn't that long ago. That yeah. was 2015. He was there. He was mentally there. He was there. He was doing push-ups. Yes. And I was like, wow, look at old Joe go. I know. And li- literally, it was just, just snapped, and he became an elderly man. Yes, a wisp of a man that he was. And it's like, but you look at Sanders. Sanders, octogenarian, <laughs> still runs 30 Isn't miles a day. Is he now? Yeah. Like, I mean, is he? If I'm not mistaken, Sanders is like 80. He's older than Biden. Yeah, I knew he was older, but I thought maybe he was turning 80. But maybe. You, I, oh, I either, either one. I just right make there. it up with it. He's but still, he's right there. Yeah, he's right there. But he's mentally. He's still there. He's still sharp into it. Tack. He knows what he wants. All that good stuff. Still I mean, grouchy and crotchety. Yeah, still grouchy. All like, Amazing. <laughs> irascible. And so it's like, yeah, so I guess I, I feel you on that. The maximum. Yeah, maybe we do need a maximum age. I guess it feels ages, but yeah, I guess I get yeah, your I, point. I guess my feeling, though, is if the person is not. I mean, yeah, I have issues with that. If the person— should, should there be a mental acuity test? Oh. Do you remember when, when, when Trump— Kept saying, yeah. Was like, I did, this, I did this mental acuity test. Like, I scored—I'm yeah. I'm sharp. I'm and with it. And people were like, what is he Which, talking about? It's like, oh, he had to remember names, like, for, you know, going into— And he wanted to see if Biden did the test. Yes. But, you know, as much as we poke fun at him for doing that, I don't think he's far off because, let me tell you— at the DMV, mm-hmm. you if you want to maintain your license, I forget after what age. You have to go but, like an eye test or something. No, no, no. Not only, like, you have to, like, read, there's like, a, at least in California, there there's like a limited test you have to redo and okay. a limited driving test that you have to redo. Oh, I see. You see after, that you still got your skills and everything right, else. After, yeah. Because, you know, you see all these little old ladies driving Cadillacs like yeah. this. Like, <laughs> they're, you know, because we all shrink, our cartilage goes away and... We all, like, little old ladies, all our hair gets dyed blue or purple and, you know, and we start driving big old Cadillacs or Buick LeSabres. Yeah, and you just see the knuckles. You just see (laughs) knuckles, little wrinkled knuckles. 
So in California, I don't know if they've done away with this because it, you know, it's not woke enough. It's it's ageist. Yeah. You know, they but back way back then in the 90s when I got my license, that was I I read all these things and I was like, "Oh, that's good. I think that's good." Like <laughs> Grandma got to retake her test when yeah. she hits, I don't know, let's say 80. Or maybe it's, but at least 80, you got to, you got, your eyes don't work the same. Your brain doesn't work the same. Your body doesn't work the same. Yeah. Surely that impacts your driving skills. Yes. But for some reason, government is different to me. And you can like, be a threat to the public. Same with the people on Capitol Hill. But shouldn't the public get to decide that? You're a threat to the public at a certain point. Doesn't the public know that? Shouldn't the public get to decide that? Guns are a threat. Guns are a threat. There are all sorts of things that are threats. Should the public get to decide who their elected leaders that's, are? That's true. The public, we you should know better than to keep re-electing Dianne Feinstein. Exactly. Who's a gajillion years old. Yes. And is it wrong if the public says, look, we know she's not mentally there. We know she's, you know, not rat-tight. We get that. We totally get we that. We know grandma's not well. We know grandma's not well. However, we accept grandma not well because whoever's around grandma is just going to have her doing exactly what she was doing for the last 50 years she's been in that spot. I mean, meaning, is it wrong for the public to make a choice? For example, Trump. You get a lot of people who would say, well, the public shouldn't get the choice to choose Trump. You don't, they would say he's incompetent. He's, you know, he's, no, he's not fit for the presidency. He's, he's, he's a nut job. He's a nut he's, job. All of that Hitler, stuff. He's and yet whatever. the public chose him. I guess what I'm getting at is the but public— But they try to have it both ways is the point. It's like yeah. you, it's fine to allow the public to keep reelecting Dianne Feinstein, who is like on the—I I forget, like the technology committee or whatever. A 90-year-old lady on the technology committee just—I <laughs> uh, mean, she's really declined over the last two or three years. Yeah. But three years ago, four, maybe four years ago— um, she's a California senator, right? Yes. So he, she was your she's senator at one point. Since That's forever, right. That's right. For as long as I can remember— Politics. Yeah. And I was on Capitol Hill for this Facebook hearing. Uh-huh. And Mark Zuckerberg's there. And she she goes off script. Mm-hmm. And I'm furiously taking notes. And she asked some bizarre question that is like anyone, you know, of, of median age we in the U.S. We know how weird and ridiculous Anyone between is. 18 yeah. and 50 that uses Facebook would know, right? Like, how to something it was something about like friends or something really yeah. inane yeah. that's like so basic bare bones but she has mark zuckerberg sitting before her and she says mr zuckerberg and whatever she she asked something about like friends and he was trying so hard i could see him kind of like this repositioning himself doesn't like doesn't know anything about the subject matter uh, yeah he's <laughs> right, like how right. do i answer her fixing his tie you know he's like how do i answer her without being an a hole yeah like I, and and I could see his face. He was like, um, "Senator X Y Z," and then you click on this or that. And he was trying. It was like he was text support. It's like my aunt saying, "How do I send a text message?" And you're like, "Oh my god!" Right. It's he like was that. like, he was. It was like she asked him a text support question, yeah. and here's Mark freaking Zuckerberg sitting there, and he's just like, "I don't know how to answer this." Like he looked at her, her aides, like, "Don't you guys tell her these things?" So so. What if the public wants that, though? I guess that's why what we're getting would, at. But, but no, why would the public wants that? You dance with the devil you know. There's that, yes. But should you be able to get rid of— Because it seems like a lot of our government is that way, meaning the public gets a choice. We keep re-voting those people in because Which, it's yeah. the devil we already know. And when they're looking at it, they say, all right, based on the past behavior, I'm okay with that. 
this other thing, that's a wild card. And in doing that, yes, she's out of her mind. Yes, she eats applesauce and she's not altogether there. Yes, her family members don't love her because otherwise they wouldn't have her in that position. All of that stuff is true. I've I've said all the time that Biden's wife don't love him. There's no way you allow that man to go rummaging around like that. Did you see the thing with Obama where he's like, Barack, Barack, and everybody's just ignoring him? Oh, you got to see that. You have to see that. He is in the White House. This is when Obama comes to visit. This was last week. Biden yelling at his buddy. His buddy, Obama, Barack, Barack. He's, this is the one that Saudi Arabia was making a joke of him about. Where did everyone go? Obama comes. Obama is there. He gives a speech. He makes jokes and everything else. And Obama is talking to the crowd. All of these other people come and swarm around Obama. And Biden is just like looking around like he's just lost in a nursing home, like somebody lost their grandpa. grandpa. And he's looking around. He's looking around. And he sees everybody with Obama. And he walks over. He's like, Barack. Nobody says anything. Barack. He puts his hand on Obama's shoulder. Obama doesn't even look at him. Oh. Doesn't even look at him. And it's like, oh, that's so embarrassing. And it was so bad that Saudi Arabia makes a joke ribbing Biden on that stuff. Like, that's how bad it looked. It looked really bad. He was just wandering around like, who left grandpa at the hospital by himself without giving him an ID chip to oh. help him get back to wherever? And if Obama them, just ignored him, just ignored him. Rock. I mean, Brock. I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have any grandparents left. But, I, you know, at, at some point, like, you know, my, my grandmother, yeah. she was starting to go senile. She had, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. But you and, loved her enough to not have her be in elected office. No, of course not. But, I mean, she's at our, at our family house, right? And she was, sometimes she'd be sitting there in her wheelchair and she would just, nothing's wrong. But she's just like, help, help. And at first, you know, when she first started losing her marbles. Yeah. We were like, oh, my God, what's wrong with grandma? Right. But after a couple of years of this and, and you know, she's just sitting there and going, help, help, staring into the ether. Yeah. You know, it's a psychological thing. So you'd be you'd go over there and be like, you're OK, grandma. Oh, you feel like I need somebody to say, you're OK, Joe. It, you're OK. You're good, Joe. You're OK, Joe. You're you're in the Oval Office. Here's you're some good. Jello. Here's some applesauce. You're, you're good. Here's banana pudding, buddy. Go, yes. go sit down, buddy. <laughs> go have a seat. Come on, buddy. That's your chair right there. They're, we're going to talk to the real POTUS. Yeah. Obama. Over there. This is the POTUS we wanted. That's what people were saying, basically. We're going to talk to Shadow POTUS, POTUS over there. That's so you, sad. You sit down, Joe. So sad. You're okay. So sad. Somebody needs to do that. I did that for Grandma. Why can't somebody do that for Joe? Yeah, nobody loved them enough. Oh, that's nobody really sad. That is sad. That's so sad. And yet here we are, President of the United States. Um, Nate in Atlanta, ATL, Chocolate City. What's going on, Nate? Yes, sir. It's not so much uh, Chocolate City anymore like D.C. is. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, my man? Uh, I, I just had a quick question because uh, I've heard people bring this up before. So you're talking about like having like a, a test for like an older person. Or, 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 or actually, so what do you think about ha- uh, a for voters? Because, I mean, voters vote for people like Diane Fire. Oh, that's interesting. So should voters have a poll test? A poll test? No. <laughs> no, because because voting voting is a constitutional right. Being a senator at a thousand years old is not a constitutional right. Right. So you can we can put we can impose limits. There are limits 
on constitute on in regards to who could be a senator, right? Well, I mean, I'm saying age right? in terms of age. I know, but there's limits in regards to younger part. Meaning you got to be more than 30-something. No, no, I don't know about Senate. Oh, there's no legal age for senators? Because, oh gosh, what was his name uh, from? Strong Thurman was like 98 well, or yeah, something, then, some ridiculous then, age. Oh, gosh, I forget his name because he was there for just a hot minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like 29, 26, maybe. So you could be much, much younger being a senator. Okay, maybe oh, there yeah, are no the age limits. There's none. So maybe they just look at it as, look, the public is the line. And the public makes a choice one way or the other in regards to whether or not the person is that somebody we want. Right. So so to the caller's point, like there it states there shall there there should be no poll tax, no poll test or whatever. Um there that has been argued in all kinds of local courts, circuit courts, federal courts. Well, they used to use it for blacks. Right. I was gonna in say this to keep was used against African Americans. Yeah. yeah. Um and, and there was like a reading, you know, some one poll randomly here in you know, polling place in Alabama, let's say, would have like a reading test. And when we're talking in the 1950s, 1960s, like photos were still black and white. Yeah. Like, yeah. There was a reading test. But I, I think so the that, point that you're making, Nate, is like, how do we get to a situation where we can put people in an office who are competent, who are not necessarily senile, um, and who could basically do the job? And I think it's always a leaky bucket, right? I mean, I don't necessarily know a way, a way, a way around that. I do. This is, the, this is where big money comes uh-huh. into play. Right. How much big money is behind Dianne Feinstein? That's, That's why question. she keeps getting put on the ticket. Because there's a huge boatload of money behind her. Agreed. And, and Nancy Pelosi. Boat, like Manhattan-sized boats of money behind Nancy Pelosi. That's why she keeps getting put on the damn ticket. That I agree with you on. That I agree with you on. If she didn't have the money, she couldn't compete. Correct. She couldn't compete. And look, it helps to have somebody see now that you're putting a bunch of money in their <laughs> pocket in order to do a particular day. I mean, what are they going to do? Complaining about the fact that, Give you know, you're trying to... Give me my banana pudding. Yeah, I just want my banana pudding. Here, here, here's this bill. Here's this bill. Let's do this. I, we have a clip, actually. You know, speaking about competence, you have some people who believe that America should get into the war in Ukraine. And I want you to... Listen to this clip. You're not going to believe this. Listen to this clip. Well, what I would say is, one, Senator Coons is a close friend of the president's and the administration, and we just respectfully disagree with his proposal. Um, the president continues to, uh, has no plans to send troops to fight a war with Russia. He doesn't think that's in our national security interests, in the interests of the American people. And so what our focus has been on has been obviously providing this historic amount of security assistance, military assistance, weapons to the Ukrainians that has helped them effectively fight this war and economic assistance as well. This is also strengthening their hands at the negotiating table, even while we are putting in place a historic package of, of economic sanctions that, as I noted earlier, even the head of the Russian Central Bank is noting the, the devastating impact of these sanctions on the Russian economy. So that has been our strategic focus. Um, of course, we support the Ukrainians uh, in every way possible, but the president is not going to fight a war with the Chris president, Coons. she has explained the president is not going to fight a war with right. Russia. Chris like, Coons, yeah. his good friend. Yes. He's over there going, hey, buddy, how about we send some U.S. soldiers over there to Ukraine? Can you imagine what is going on in his head to say something that stupid? Like even Biden gets that's too far. Even Biden gets that. Right. Even the people well, in his administration like thinks that. that's too far. And Coons is like, yeah, yeah, well, America needs to get in that war. Are you insane? What is your, like, what, are you on drugs? 
Like, what is your issue? And then for Saki, Saki was the one who said, we got to pay for our values. When, when, when Peter Ducey was like, hey, this is getting really expensive. Got to pay for our values, Peter. Okay. Yeah. Values are expensive. Values are expensive, especially when you want to keep a country in your orbit. She strikes me as a Karen. Is she a Karen, you think? Oh, I have no idea what she, what she does in person. I, I do she know she's full of it. I, and I know she's great at her job, basically, you know, answering a question, speaking for an hour, not saying a word. Right. Um, of a value or, or a substance. Whether she realizes it or not, I don't care. What is taking place in Russia from the standpoint of, hey, we're really hitting them good. I care about what happens here. In fact, of the matter is, my mom is like, all right, I can only buy half a tank of gas. Like, because, again, the expense of the stuff went yeah. dramatically. Or we have family members who are like, well, we got to ration the amount of food that we buy because, again, this stuff has gone up in price. The level of inflation is not getting any better. It's not getting any better. And from the standpoint of Europe, there's a story that came out where Spain, it's talking about rationing energy to France because of an agreement they had with Portugal in order to keep the cost of energy at a certain level. In order to basically maintain the energy at that level, they were basically have to cut it out to France. I mean, this is the world that these guys are basically creating based on the geopolitical policy that they've decided to go along with. And so now it's like, oh, yeah, but hey, I know that we're hitting a lot of pain here, but Russia is getting it worse as that somehow makes it better. It's nonsense. But the idea that, I mean, but that's that's one level of mendat- of of insanity. But my boat is sinking, but so is theirs. Yeah, so we should feel okay about the fact that our boat is sinking. Yeah, it's like and Coons to take it to the level of we need to be in a third world war. That's what Coons is saying. That's, I know. That's staggering. So right, and he's young. He's like in his fifties, young relative to Diane yeah. Feinstein. Yeah. This yeah. scale is yeah, the scale is insane. Just, yeah. yeah. So he's relatively young because he's literally young enough to be her grandson. Why do you think somebody would say something that hair-raisingly stupid? Do you think it's the brinksmanship thing where it's like, okay, we can do that. There's no way Russia is going to push back on that. I would go look and see who donates the most money to Chris Coons. Ah, like weapon contractors or something to that effect. Is it Raytheon? Is it Boeing? Is it, I mean, and, and, and even if you don't see the big names like that, there are subsidiary companies because yeah. they all branch off into a hundred different little businesses. But if you trace their money back, this is why journalism takes so long. But you would think— It goes back to like, okay, this is the parent company is Raytheon. But you would think that he would care on some iota about ending the world. Because otherwise, he would have to believe that we can get involved in that conflict and Russia is not going to do anything about the fact that we're involved in that conflict. And at this point, that seems harebrained. That seems harebrained. Like, I— like. Yes, Zelensky has been running around the world trying to start the Third World War. Doesn't necessarily mean you say yes to that. And I, 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 but see, I, I don't put the blame on Zelensky. Somebody is don't? Pu- no, somebody is puppeteering him. And I believe those somebodies uh-huh. are right here. I agree with you that right he's being puppeteered. Right here in the 202. But his responsibility are the people of Ukraine. That's my issue. Like, regardless of who's puppeteering him. I agree. I yeah. agree that that's his responsibility, but he is, I believe there is somebody telling him, you got to do X, Y, Z. I believe he had a couple, you know, since the the six-week incursion first began, um, there were were little specks and flecks, a flickering of some sense in him and some humanity in him where he wanted to come to the table with Vladimir Putin. And we talked about this yesterday. But something happened when we were like biolabs, biolabs. And Victoria Newland was on Capitol Hill talking about biolabs. 
I think there were some some of her surrogates that probably had a conversation with him. Yeah. And was like, hey. It's like, dude, we need you to. Dude. We need more of your people to die. Dude, this is right. They did that in Maidan. Yeah. What makes you think they're not doing it now? I guess my thing is, it's not that I am. I mean, that's, that's feasible, so, right? Oh, of course it is. They I, did that in Maidan. No, you must understand me. I, I don't look at it as, okay. Yeah, I don't look at it as Zelensky is, how can I explain this? I look at it as he is being used as a useful idiot for God's sake. I mean, like, even the whole thing, getting the country no, into the process at all. Not an idiot. You don't think he's being used as a useful idiot? Not a, as a useful idiot. I think he's just going along with it. Ah, that's even worse. Right. That's even worse. Because at that point, it's not him being manipulated or used or, hey, you guys are going to be part of NATO. I mean, he's been so bitter um, at NATO and all of those things. He seems like he was used. Like, that's, that's the way I'm coming from that. Like, when he's like, oh, this is going to be on your conscience. Yeah, but sometimes people... Feel that way. No, they want to be used. Oh, okay. Fair enough. There are people that want to be used because they stand to benefit one way or another. Yeah. We may not know it on the surface right now, but people always have their, their agendas, mm-hmm. and we find out later. It could be 30, 40, 50 years later when things are declassified. Yeah. When everybody's dead and gone. It's like, here's the, what's going on behind the scenes. The next generation finds out what was happening. I 1,000% agree with you that these guys are trying to fight to the last dead Ukrainian. And I also believe that this war is less about Ukraine and more so about the security architecture of what Europe is going to be going forward after this. And I got to be honest, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, even in the way that the economic system is kind of splitting apart with these kind of spheres of influence of Russia, China, um, et cetera, U.S., Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Multipolar. Multipolar world. I want to thank all of you guys for joining us. I want to thank my producers. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. I want to thank all of you, our callers. We have very many callers for today. Thank you for listening. Absolutely. And streaming. And streaming. That's right, rumble. Rumbling. Hit it with a rumble. Rumble. Um, But you guys, phenomenal day guys. And we will see you bright and early in the morning. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fault Lines.